was a, a story in one of the papers that Pierre Van Hooydonk had announced he was going on strike. And that was when Ian was going on holiday and that was me completely in at the deep end because everybody was at Forest was so furious with what he had said in the interview with me. I then got calls from the managers saying, what, you know, Dave Bassett, what, what, what the hell is he saying? Da, 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 da. I would want to be a part of it. I wouldn't want to kind of miss the boat on that. And it'd be something that I was on the outside looking in. Uh, nothing would have stopped Adrian Dotti getting into Manchester United's first team other than the injury that he had at the time that he had it, because he was that good. Uh, or his father felt that there were unanswered questions about his time at Manchester United. Had he been looked after properly? Had his injury been looked after properly? Had he been given every chance? They felt that there would be, it was opening a can of worms, uh, that they didn't have the, it would raise questions that they would, didn't have the answers to. This is eerie. Um, I'm going back to this place where I, where my life changed completely. Um, what was it 17 years earlier? It was just, you know, that was, it was a really emotional thing for me. Well, for Matt, first of all, but for me. And I think, it, you know, the comments on that piece told me that, you know, the, the readers found it emotional too. You know, so I kind of broke from the herd because I was just, you just go stir crazy in there with the same people, same restaurants, same tensions, the same journalists. Hi there guys, uh, welcome back to the channel. Um, we've got another interview for you today. Um, my guest is Oliver Kay, he's the senior football writer for The Athletic um, and we'll talk about his life and career in football journalism. And if you are new to our channel, uh, please subscribe to us. Uh, we want to grow our channel as much as we can uh, and we really appreciate the support you guys have been giving us. If you want to listen to this uh, interview on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast, uh, the links are in the um, description below. And that's where you also find our uh, Twitter and Facebook pages. Um, so, um, Ollie, thanks for, thanks for joining us today. So, Ollie, um, let's go back uh, to the beginning. So, um, and what was your childhood like and um, where did you uh, grow up? Uh, I grew up in uh, a town called Nantwich in Cheshire, um, which is, um, yeah, it was just a fairly normal, normal market town. Um, and I, in terms of this, you know, in terms of um, explaining my, uh, you know, love of football, I think one of the great advantages in terms of that, you know, growing up there at that particular time and, and having a dad who was you know, massively into football, uh, but was, you know, the game of football. So he would, he would very often on a Saturday morning, for example, you know, look at the look at the fixture list in a in a paper and say, oh, oh, you know, because because we had probably um, I'm trying to think probably about nine first division top flight clubs within within about an hour and a quarter of us at that time, which would be you know the two Merseyside clubs, two Manchester clubs, uh, Stoke, which was just down the road, and and Wolves, Villa. Uh, Birmingham, West Brom. We, we would go. We would go to, you know, almost at, at the drop of a hat. You know, when I was six, seven, eight years old, we would end up. You know, he would say, "Oh, let's go to, let's go to Wolves, let's go to Stoke, let's go to Everton, let's go to Man City, whatever." So, you know, from a, from an early age, I was, um, I was going to, um, you know, a lot of matches, and then, um, you know, obviously, I, you know, like like um, like anybody, um, developed a. 
in instantly developed a, a fondness uh, obsession with, with with one particular club, and, and we went there um, a lot more. Um, but we, but I'd say my my um, my uh, experience, my football fan experience, as, as when I was very young, was was very varied in the same way that it probably has become as a journalist. Uh, so, but I, I was, you know, I was just one of those kids from aged age six upwards who was just absolutely like dangerously weirdly disconcertingly obsessed with with football and every aspect of football and if it was you know if there was any football on tv even if it was you know two minutes on the news on a saturday night i would i would watch it or video it and you know the big match on a sunday afternoon or match of the day on a saturday you know i would always watch them um always watch you know, record sports night or midweek sports special. Just watch everything obsessively, and something you know, and often, very, you know, very often writing about it and reenacting games, you know, in the garden or and the, you know, playing at the park or playing in school and playing Sudutio and, and just being one of those absolute, you know, one-dimensional kids whose life just revolves around football at the expense of pretty much everything else. Apart from Star Wars, I was in Star Wars as well. <laughs> oh, good stuff. So, um, what was your sort of first foray into into journalism? Did you have, um, I imagine, a lot of like, work experience places, anything like that? Yeah, um, I, I mean, I, I did, you know, because I, I just got it into my head because because I was because I would watch matches and and write about them and, and even you know write about matches I played in school matches and stuff and. Um, <laughs> play to Butio and write about those matches against myself. A bit sad. Um, I would just, um, you know, I, writing about football was just something that was just something I did from like a really early age. I've got, you know, the 1982 World Cup when I was seven years old, I've got a thing upstairs with, with basically, you know, me write, writing out all the squads, including like Algeria and Cameroon and El Salvador and Honduras and stuff like that, and, and player to watch and stuff like that. So I, I think I was probably, um, you know, at, at risk of sounding a bit, you know, like that opening line in Goodfellas, you know, as far back as I remember, I, you know, I always wanted to be a, a football writer. Um, but when I, so, so when I was at um, school and we you know, had to do work experience at various points, I, I go along to my local paper, which was the Crew Chronicle or Nantwich Chronicle, um, do a week here and there. And I felt like, you know, when I went to university, I felt like, well, that that will mean I've got a good chance of getting the job that I want to get when I finish. And then I did finish university and I hadn't applied for any courses or anything like that because I'd been too busy um, well, having a good time at university and playing football and being um, consumed by Euro 96 um, and, and all that kind of thing. Like I got to the end and, and thought, right, well, I'll, I'll apply for journalism course now. And they said, well, what, for this year? No, of course, the, you know, the, all the courses are taken up. So I thought, all oh, right, so I actually have to go and get some work experience. So I wrote to all my, you know, all the local papers again within, within that sort of catchment area that I, that I was in within growing up, which meant, you know, the Manchester papers, Liverpool papers, um, down to, you know, Birmingham and, and Stoke. And, and Stoke, the Stoke Evening Sentinel got back to me and said that they just had a vacancy arisen on their 
sports desk and um you know by all means come along next week and help us out because we're a man short type thing and I, I went along there and and um i think liked it so much that i i, mean, I, was, I was there for months basically being a probably a pest in many ways but i was you know doing all the jobs that nobody wanted to do and writing about grassroots football and you know writing about darts and snooker and and stuff like that i, I just absolutely loved it and um you know writing on crew crew alex occasionally um I, I just really really loved it and they treated me very well there and um looked after me and then after that i went on a course um in cardiff the center for journalism studies in cardiff which is a very good course got a work experience not even post halfway through that and as a result of that i got a job with them and um yeah i'd say aged 23 that's when i became not a proper journalist because obviously a sports journalist isn't a proper journalist but um but a <laughs> officially a, a journalist a trainee journalist uh, who was um yeah professional in 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 the loosest sense of the world so the sense of the word well, so, yeah sports journalism not work is it when it's when it's fine um so um obviously you, you spoke about writing match reports for school games you you played it and so on and um, but was was journalism was that a you know a career um aspiration for you was that something you wanted to get into when you were a youngster it was it, it was but i mean i would sometimes go to matches and and you know we'd see the um you know, we'd walk past the press box on the on the way out, and my my dad would say, "Oh, you know, um, you know that was, you know that, that that's all the all the journalists doing their doing their reports." And the one I remember is, um, I always remember seeing is, you know, rather than it being someone like Hugh McIlvenny or or David Lacey or one of the great writers, the one I always remember seeing sticks in my mind is is um, Stuart Hall, who was the um, quite a household name in those days because he was as well as being a BBC sports reporter in, in the northwest he was the host of the uh, it's a knockout which was a big tv program at, at the time and um unfortunately that that um that uh, anecdote rather loses its um sheen because of uh, what um what was later found out about Stuart Hall but um but yeah that, that that's one of the things that sprung stuck in my mind I, but I would also um i would just read every every word that was written about football in, in the papers and that wasn't that wasn't much in those days you know you'd it would often be a page of football or, or two pages of football um and then we'd get different papers in, in school and i would always go to the library and you know look at those on a monday and read read the match reports there um but i didn't i i mean it's not like now where there is you know all these journalism courses advertised everywhere and you know graduate journalism courses and um undergraduate journalism courses um there wasn't a sort of obvious way in but on the other hand it was i would say it was it was probably more it was it was well it was certainly an easier process back then i think to get your foot on the ladder or, and and, and on those opening, uh, you know, first few rungs of the ladder, because whereas you know there weren't, you know, there weren't all these courses advertised, and there weren't sort of structured ways in. Um, newspapers were still 
growing in that era or, or advertising in newspapers was still growing in that era and and um you know when i did my course in cardiff there was a an expectation really that all of us 30 odd of us on that course would end up with with jobs on local papers or, or maybe even national paper coming out of it in terms of our first jobs and uh you know that, that that was my experience i think that was pretty much everybody else's experience just because at that time newspapers were very much sort of open for business and and were taking people on whereas now there are so many students doing journalism courses but there's absolutely no guarantee of jobs at the end of it and that's that's where i have massive sympathy with a lot of these um um uh, you know a lot of students doing that because i think you know i think i i did that route at, at the right age. I think even people doing it five or 10 years later probably found it a lot harder to get up the ladder. And I think certainly people who've done that route 20 years later um, finding it an awful lot harder because although the, the industry, the sports writing is now everywhere and the, you know, the media is now so wide and you can, you can have a social media account, Twitter account, you know um, wordpress account whatever and you can write any anybody can write about football and be published but being published and forging a career for yourself is harder now i think than it was back then i know some sports journalists of my generation dis disagree and say oh no that there are so many, many more options now i think i think there are fewer options in terms of establishing a stable career yeah, but that, that was um, a question I was going to ask, actually. Is it harder now for, for younger journalists coming into the industry? Because, you know, the, the route, traditional route, as in, you know, you're going to local papers like um, like you did, um, that, I mean, and the, the actual um, standard of local journalism is, is declining, really. Um, and see, most newspapers locally seem to be full of advertising now. So mm. that route's okay. shrinking compared to where it was. and um, and you know, social media and the internet has helped um, with opportunities, but um, in terms of a stable um, sort of career, that that's that that's very seems to be very rare now. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's um, yeah. I, I think well, I, I speak to students and and people who've come off journalism courses uh, a lot, and and. Um, try to offer some kind of guidance and help but it, it's it's so different the industry to to um what it was you know 22 years ago when i came off my course i mean it, there was I, I would liken it slightly to the um situation you, you face if you if you want to be a young you know if you want to be a footballer there are there are so many more kids taken on by academies these days and yet there are fewer and fewer homegrown kids getting onto, um, you know, getting onto the pitch in the Premier League. That, that, that is undeniable. Um, and, you know, with journalism, it's, you know, there are so many more courses. There are so many more people arriving out of university with journalism qualifications or sports journalism qualifications. And in many ways, they've never been better prepared and were more sort of specifically prepared than I was as a 23-year-old. Um, but are you going to get that opportunity to get the job and, and to, to shine and to do the journalism that shows your ability 
um, in a way that enables you to kind of keep getting, keep moving up the ladder. And I, I think that is the that is the real difference. So I, I I feel really lucky in terms of the timing of of my career because there was also there was also a thing with with with, with in terms of my timing and and the generation I belong to, whereas where I think a lot of when I moved to Manchester in '99. That was at a time when a lot of the older journalists who were covering, you know, Manchester or Merseyside for, or Yorkshire for the various um, for the various national papers, they all seemed to either retire at one at once or in a short space of time, or move on to Sunday papers at one time. So in a very very short space of time, you had a change in in whoever was covering. You know, I mean, Paul Joyce took the Merseyside job for the um, Daily Express. Don Fifield for the um, for the Guardian. Then Andy Hunter for the Independent, and then the Guardian. And uh, it was there was a really and, and then the same in Manchester. Neil Custis took over at the Sun. Ian Ladyman at the Mail. Dave McDonnell from the um, for the Mirror. Danny Taylor for the Guardian. Mark Ogden and Tim Rich for the Daily Telegraph, me for the Times. It was just it was just this remarkable turnover in a very short space of time, where a lot of us who were a lot younger ended up getting those jobs. And then, obviously, fast forward nearly twenty years, and and we're you know a lot of people are, are still in jobs. And I think had we been had I been five years younger, I would probably have found it harder to get onto that or to make that next step on the ladder when I did. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, I'm one of those that, you know, um, to explore journalism at, um, at uni and haven't, haven't been able to get into the, the industry. It's not mm-hmm. something I'm looking to get into now, but um, I've used those skills for half channel and, and things like that. There's a lot of transferable skills, which um, I think any any journalism graduate could use in whether it's communications or running the YouTube channel or you know, vlogging, you know, that that kind of thing. So it's not um it's not just journalism that um, we can sort of use it towards. Yeah, yeah, I, well I I'm you're probably reassuring me there because I, I've often thought, well God, if you know after after <laughs> twenty three years in, in, in journalism you think, well God, if if it all came crashing down, what what else could I do after after twenty three years doing this doing this job that is basically writing about football what 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 could i do if it came to that so um i think in this case, in this instance it's you reassuring me that skills such as they are are are, are are transferable even if it's even if it's just writing writing about football and trying to work to deadlines which um it's never been my strength the deadlines but there we go it's a case of are you still keeping still keeping contact with you know you'll see your contacts over the years and um, and stuff like you know, talking on video and stuff. I mean, you, you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm almost certain it wasn't natural, certainly not now. So, you, know, you, you do pick it up eventually. And, mm. you know, if you've got a, a, a platform, especially on social media, I mean, that's, that's all part of the, of the battle, really. I think it's a big part of the battle now. And, and, you know, it's interesting looking back even 10 years, if I think back to the 2010 World Cup, um, I think. A few journalists, and I was one of them, and and John Cross, Henry Winter. You know, I think we were among the first um, UK sports journalists to um, 
get on Twitter and, and sort of embrace that. I, mean, I was a bit of a Johnny come lately, but in, but by the time the 2010 World Cup came around, that was that was when people were sort of starting to get onto Twitter and Twitter became a big sort of um, it became a big deal, I think, for a lot of us during the 2010 World Cup, and all, but also became a quite a divisive subject within the industry. And a lot of people said, "Well, I'm I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. It's a complete waste of time." And looking back, I think, God, I think I think nearly everybody ended up signing up for it sooner or later because they realised that, you know, this is this is the way of getting readers to read your stuff, you know, or or, or a, a, a readership which you might not otherwise have and raising your profile at a time when you know, for the times you know i was at the times at, at that particular time we during the 2010 world cup i think i think maybe just before or just during it we went behind a pay, payroll uh, for good so there was a danger that um you know i would um just be invisible on the internet um and i think um the way we were able to use Twitter in terms of um, in terms of uh, showing what the work we did and 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 you know hopefully persuading readers that that we were doing something that was worth reading that they might not be able to get elsewhere, um, which I think was and is the case with the Times and and certainly well you know certainly is the case with the Athletic where I work now. Um, I think that social media profile is is incredibly important and it, it, may, it, it makes me laugh really that someone like um, Martin Samuel um, I remember him during that 2010 World Cup he was he was like quite dismissive saying you know no I, I'm absolutely not going to do it and fair dues to him he's 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 stuck yeah. to it like, you know, he's, he's almost almost the, the one journalist you know one leading sports journalist in the UK who, who said no I'm not going to do not going to do sports journalist sports journalism and um I think you have to be seriously good and seriously um, um, influential and, and respected in order to to have um, maintained that kind of profile that he's maintained um, throughout ten years of steadfast, steadfastly, stubbornly refusing the um, <laughs> the glamour to be on social uh, to be on social media. But I think for certainly for anybody uh, at entry level and, and trying to to work their way up I think it's you know I just don't think you can be a journalism without it a journalist without it now yeah definitely um now you mentioned earlier that um you joined the uh not in a meeting post and uh, you joined there in the summer of 98 um I mean that must have been a real eye-opener particularly that season um because yeah. uh you know Nottingham Forest were relegated that season uh, Dave Bassett was in charge and you had the Pierre Van Hoydon going on strike I mean what um what experience that must have been? Well, it was Ian Ladyman, who's who's now at the Mail, was was my colleague, and and um, um, he was the Nottingham Forest reporter at the time, and I was kind of floating between Forest and Notts County and Nottinghamshire, you know, County Cricket Club and the Rugby Club, despite having zero interest in and even less than zero knowledge of cricket and rugby. Um, I was always just you know, football, football, football. So um, I, I would kind of dip in when you know, I would report on Forest when Ian was off. And I remember a, a, um, 
a Friday night when I'd um, when I'd just joined and, and I'd been doing a Notts County friendly, I think, yeah, friendly at Mansfield or something like that. And then after the game, I went back to the office and just something, you know, a message came out that there was a, a story in one of the papers that Pierre Van Hoydonk had announced he was going on strike. And that was when Ian was going on holiday and that was me completely in at the deep end as a, having been there for, you know, having been at college four weeks earlier or six weeks earlier, finding out that I was now, I'd now been left with this uh, story of, um, of um, Pierre Van Hoydonk going on strike. So that, that was just, that was, <laughs> that was, yeah, certainly in at the deep end and, and trying to, um, you know, it was fine when, um, Forest were, uh, you know, were, were, were less in the news, and you'd have almost like a free run at, at, at the players and, and at the manager and, and so on. But at a time like that, where you know, they become the, the back page story nationally, there was so much competition. I thought, God, you know, I've, I've got I've got no contacts at this club. I've got I've, I've got no knowledge of how to get through this. So I, that that was a real. Uh, eye-opener in terms of how you have to get on top of the game and, and you know, how you have to foster relationships with people so that, you know, those players and those managers and, and so on and the, the directors will, will, will pick up the phone to you and, and, or better still, they will pick up the phone and ring you and tell you the news. That, that's what, that's the situation you need to get to and I was miles away from that. But the other thing that, the other thing that struck me about that, that time and covering um, you know, Nottingham Forest were a Premier League club at that time, but I, you know, I, I used to live, you know, just you know, literally a corner kick away from um, um, from the City Ground um, at the time. Just, just um, you know, in, in an apartment overlooking no, flat. Let's be honest, flat. Um, look, overlooking the the stadium, and I could I could just almost roll out of bed and and go to the Go to the training ground, which was adjoining the stadium, and just wait, wait for um, wait for players to come off the training pitch and say, you know, Colin Cooper, the captain, you know, have you got five minutes? And, he, and he'd give you fifteen minutes because he was a lovely bloke. And Dave Bessons and all these all these players, and you know, Scott Gamble and Steve Chettle and people like that. They they were just the culture in those days was a reporter will come and he will ask you a question. He'll ask you for five minutes and you'll, you'll stand and chat with him and you might do 10, 15 minutes on the record twice a week, or you might do sit there and have a cup of tea with them and, and um, chat off the record. And that was so different, you know, so much better in terms of um, building up relationships as, as a local reporter. And Ian Ladyman, who was, you know, the full-time Nottingham Forest reporter, he was, he was really friendly with a lot of a lot of those players, and and I would you know I would go in maybe once a week or you know, a couple of times a month and sit there with Dave Bassett, who was the manager, and you know that, that was or Sam Allardyce, who was manager at Notts County at the time. That was just a real eye opener at the time. And then when I moved to Manchester, it was the same at Man City, who were in the what is now the Championship at the time. They they just got promoted. Um, you know, sitting with Joe Royal twice a week, and, and he he just you know there, there was hardly anyone there. There was me and a um, Danny Taylor or I would go along from Wardle's agency, and, and we we'd sort of mop up at, at Man City and 
provide all the copy for all the national papers. Um, there'd be a BBC local radio reporter, a re reporter from Piccadilly Radio, and that was it. That, you know, that you just walked in and, and that was it. And the guy, you'd, you'd mingle with the players and then you'd go to Manchester United and, and the same arrangement had existed there until perhaps a year or two earlier when the barriers had started to come down and reporters were sort of kept at arm's length and it became, well, you can only come down twice a week or you can only come down once a week or you can only talk to players with my permission. You know, that being Alex Ferguson. And I think very, very quickly from that point when I got to Manchester in 99, um, I think the barriers almost like across the board in, in terms of top flight clubs, the barriers came down and within about five years, you couldn't speak to anybody at any club without getting permission from a, from a press officer first. So yeah, it was, I just sort of caught the tail end of that culture and um, I miss it really. I think it's, it, it was, um, I'm sure that a lot of the players don't miss it, but I think in some, certain ways it, it would be, uh, it would be beneficial to them. Yeah, I was going to ask that actually. I mean, obviously nowadays you've got like press officers and you've got player liaisons, PR people, and you know a lot of the top players have got entourages like you know actors and actresses now. So, um, but do you feel like you said you you missed obviously those times where you could just go to the training ground and, and catch a, a player or a manager? I mean, um, do you feel it would help players with their you know relationships with the media and you know their you know, kids know their personality more if they were more open to to interviews with with them um, different media companies. I think I do feel like the advent of social media over the past decade and the growth of social media has given them a totally different platform and has enabled them to communicate in a way that they're in total control of. Well, as long as they're in control of their minds and, and, and their fingers when, when they're tweeting or, or whatever. Um, yeah, Victor and Nietzsche be not so much. <laughs> well, there's, there's <laughs> any number of, um, of mistakes, but, but they've become fewer and fewer, haven't they? Over, yeah, they're, over they're, the years. Yeah. I, think, I think people have learned the hard way in some cases. Uh, you know, I remember Wayne Rooney within about a week of... Um, oh, well, he asked Rio Fernand if he wanted to live. Well, that, well, that was that was normal. I, you know, I think he was just confusing it for being able to text someone. But then, you know, yeah. somebody somebody insulted him on Twitter, and he, he oh, yeah, yeah, put, yeah. Put, yeah. put them to sleep. Um, yeah. Which was, uh, yeah, I think you know, I think as I say, pe people learn the hard way. Joey Barton, um, perhaps, paid the price Ash, more. Ashley Cole, the cycle FA. Oh, yeah, yeah, the famous bunch of uh, bunch of what's it? Is he called the FA? But it's it's. Social media has, has definitely enabled players to build up relationships with, with fans again. I, I think there is, there's a, it's a real double-edged sword in some ways because there's a, there's a real downside to it in terms of players getting, becoming fixated on what, pe what people are saying about them, good or bad. And I've heard a lot from uh, players and, and their agents about how certain players have just become consumed by how they're being perceived on social media. Like it's, it's you know, it was often said of, of the previous generation of players that um, they would obsess about 
the media scrutiny on them when they were playing for England and you know what what are the papers going to say about my performance what mark out of 10 am I going to get if I have a bad game and I think that's just gone completely out the window I don't, I don't think people players even care about that now I think they care about the way they are portrayed on social media if, if they're trending in a bad way on social media particularly through an England game and, and they're being hammered and they're being mocked by these sort of banter accounts which I just find so bloody tedious um or, or you know or just by the public it's just um it's really unpleasant for them and I think that that you know you look at the amount of grief that somebody like Jesse Lingard has had or Phil Jones has had or um I think that there always seem to be whipping boys at each at each club but I think it's particularly pronounced when it's whipping boys with the England team and you think well you know, what would it been what would it been like for David Beckham post 98 what would it have been like for Rooney post 2006 or Phil Neville post Euro 2000 or, or any of the players after the you know Gerard and Lampard and so on after they failed to qualify for Euro 2008 they were just you know they were getting hammered but they would get they would have got it far worse in the age of social media um so i, I I've, I've gone on to something completely different and you're asking about you know do the players miss that? I, I think that generation, that, that so-called golden generation of, of Gerard, Lampard, Ferdinand, Terry, Cole, Beckham, Scholes, etc. Brilliant players, absolutely brilliant players. And I feel that they suffered slightly because that kind of, they'd almost been slightly put on a pedestal and the barriers had gone up and they we weren't seeing their human side so often through the media on a day-to-day -day basis. They, they weren't communicating with the fans as much um, as perhaps, the, you know, the players of the nineties, you know, Shearer and, and Tony Adams and Stuart Pearce and people like that had been used to. So they, they were on one hand being sort of, they were being distanced from the public and they didn't have the social media um, advantage where you can perhaps round you know you can perhaps cultivate your reputation a bit more so they were having some of the benefits of being distanced from the public but they weren't having the the ability to put out their message so i think that generation perhaps in some ways feel blessed to have not had social media but in other ways they would feel like they were the generation that got caught between the um you know every day's of every day's a, an interview um, culture and having that relationship, day-to-day -day relationship with the media. And on the other hand, the 2010s generation where there was a um, relationship with the fans through social media. And I think the ones who have got a good relationship with the fans through social media in some ways are in total control of their message. But to me, there's something far more human and far more organic and natural and genuine when there's a relation you know relation a proper interview with a journalist and you see that you know a, a no holds barred open interview with you know, it could be it can be a newspaper reporter it could be somebody from the athletic it could be tv or radio but i think if it's a reporter if it's you know what you see with someone like paul pogba for example is a very refined culture cultivated uh brand 
management through his social media or Cristiano Ronaldo or someone like that. But you don't very often see those people sit down with a journalist and you know, talk openly and honestly through um, their career and their ups and downs and what they're going through. So I think there's a real, there's something really nice. I think when you see a, when you sit down with a player and and they and they do speak openly and, and they do speak um, in in a in a way that reminds you that yeah that they are a human being and not just a sportsman and not just a brand. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when you were at the Not in the Evening Post, was there any um, stories that you broke, any exclusives or an interview that you that you did with the you know, one of the players or, or the manager where you thought you that gave you that bit of confidence where I'm, I'm making it now. I'm, you know, I've got belief in what I'm doing. <laughs> um, weirdly, a lot of the um, I think a lot of the in terms of the the, um, the the reporting side, I think I probably did better on the on the on the cricket. So despite not not really having an interest in cricket, I, you know, because I was reporting on Nottinghamshire County Cricket Club, and I was you know basically the only the only one who was, I was able to build up. Um, relationships with you know with the chief executive there and the coach there and some of the players and and I was you know breaking you know big stories about you know who their overseas player was going to be who's Shoaib Akhtar who was you know one of the most yeah, one of, yeah. famous cricket players in the, in the world at the time which was probably slightly lost on me but I, but <laughs> I still um, you know so it was I'd say that was almost um, you know, so I was getting good at getting the stories through those um, contacts at, at the cricket club, but when I was reporting on, you know, Notts v Somerset on a on a four day match, I was thinking, God, you know, what what on earth do I write here? What what fielding position is that? So I, I would basically completely blag it in terms of the um, the fielding positions and probably just absolutely leave out any technical detail whatsoever <laughs> and just sort of focus on the human side or the you know the players reactions or 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 whatever so um i don't think i was any great loss to the cricket um writing fraternity um but um yeah i mean for example when you talk about that that saga with um pierre van hoydonk and um and him being at forest and being on strike you know i plucked up the courage to to ring him and, and he gave me a sort of exclusive interview and outlined what his frustrations were and that sort of the funny way things worked in those days and they don't quite work in the same way now but because everybody was at Forest was so furious with what he had said in the interview with me I then got calls from the managers saying what you know Dave Bassett what what, what the hell is he saying you know you know he, he's saying we've broken his progress well I'll tell you what you know I'll tell you what He's, you know, this is what we told him, this, this is what we told him. And I said, okay, well, look, can I use all of that on the record? And then that was, and, and he said, yeah, 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 absolutely. That, you know, I want that in the paper. I want that, I want that on the back page. I want that, um, <laughs> give the same prominence. So the same prominence, it got back page and then inside spread. And then you got players almost queuing up to slag Pierre Van Hoydonk off, which, um, so I'd go down to the training ground the next day and it was almost like a queue of them, Steve Stone and Mark Crossley and people like that saying, <laughs> saying that, um, you know, how he wouldn't be welcomed back and speaking, to, you know, it, it then got to the point where they all clammed up and Ian Ladyman came back from holiday, not before time, and he took over, took control of the story, thank goodness, 
Um, but then there was a, a point where he was off again, and you know this went on for months. And I rang up Nigel Ray, who was chief executive, I think, and he basically said, "Well, look, it's got to the point now where we need to be or grow up and be sensible, and and you know if, if Pierre's ready for talk to talk, then we will." So over time, I managed to get build up and you know a few back pages through cricket and through to through cricket and through football and maybe some of the you know, rugby interviews and features that I did as well, um, despite, again, not really knowing one end of the scrum from another. Um, so I managed to get you know, some kind of basic portfolio, as you'd call it, of cuttings so that um, when I came to kind of um, speak to the Times about 18 months later, I was able to say, well, look, I've done this, I've done that. And it probably looked, made me look a lot more competent and experienced and, um, uh, yeah, hard-nosed and pointed-elbowed journalism that, uh, journalist than, than I was at the time. I think I was really wet behind the ears and very inexperienced and very raw and green. But I think certain stories had basically kind of fallen into my lap by being the right person in the right place at the right time. No, definitely, just got to make the most of it. Um, yeah. So, what were the like the tips and tricks that you learned um, as a young journalist, and, you know, growing through the ranks, that have really um, helped um, in your career um, going forward? I wish I could remember them because I think if I, if I could, I'd probably start applying them again. I mean, it was it was it was totally different in those days because you were, you know, if I, if I talk about Nottingham in particular. Um, you were just trusted and you were kind of welcome to the training ground almost with open arms and and um went up to manchester and you could do the same at man city you could do the same at bolton blackburn weirdly was a bit more controlled um in the way that man united was you know blackburn had been a big club and won the league in 95 and and but they, I think they were a second division. Yeah, they, they 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 were in the second tier when I got there, in got to Manchester, and 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 yet reporting on them was this very controlled environment where it would be ten minutes with a manager and a player every Friday morning. You couldn't you couldn't go to the training ground and build up relationships there. So I had better relationships with people at Man City and at Bolton than I did at Blackburn or at Man United than at, and at Liverpool and Everton. That it was it was. It was yeah useful in in that respect, but I think I think one thing that is very easily mistaken and, and missed is that I think when you particularly when you're a young reporter breaking in and and you, but I think it, it really applies now as well for, for me and for everybody else is that you can interview somebody and you can have a good half hour with somebody and and have lunch or have a coffee with somebody and feel like you've really struck up a a rapport with them um, but in order to really build a lasting journalist contact relationship you you need to have an ongoing thing where you prove useful to them and they prove useful to you and that's that's I think that's where I've um, been less good over the years as a journalist I think there are journalists who are absolutely brilliant at that and, and are you could tell by the stories they get that they are that they've got you know 
brilliant contacts who who come to them with stories all the time and i think i think i've been i've had times when i've been that kind of journalist but i've i've also because because my brief over the last 12 years as a journalist has been a broad one i think i've been somebody who's sort of had a you know i've not had the same depth of of way, way penetrating individual clubs context wise as you have when you're so if i think of you know reporting on man city and man united in the 2000s i had miles better contacts than other people at that time whereas whereas now i, I perhaps take more of a back seat and there might be one or two people that um i talk to at those clubs who can who i could speak to um when i need to really and, and say look is this right is this is this is, um, what about if I'm writing a story on this particular issue? But I think there are other journalists who on those clubs are much better connected. So I'm not the one that will necessarily hear who Manchester United are going to sign in the next transfer window. I think there are you know, other journalists who are, are, are much better at, at that story. So I think when, when you're on a particular beat, you need to stay on top of those contacts every day and press them sort of every day every week not to the point where you're irritating them but so that they feel it's part of their job to speak to you and to keep you um <laughs> in the loop um and that 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 is a really you know it's it, it's quite fulfilling to do it but it's also quite exhausting because you're pummeling the same people for information all the time whereas on a broader brief you're perhaps this you know revisiting those same contacts once a month or once every couple of months and you're you've probably got a, a a broader perspective across the the whole game rather than that narrow very intense focus on an individual club yeah no, definitely um so in, uh, in 1999 you um joined the award or water agency um and for those three years or so um you know the clubs you you, you cover they had great success. I mean, the uh, Man United would win leagues easily, and then they had uh, Liverpool winning the uh, winning a treble in, in 2001. Um, you know, Man City you know, trying to get back in the Premier League. So, yeah. um, you know, that must have been a real, um, a real good time to cover um, those clubs uh, in that era. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I, I was, as I said, it was it was working for the the Wardle Agency as it wasn't it was known then. It's now the Wardle Whittle agency and i would say that was the best ground even more than Autumn evening post um in terms of i mean people people won't know the name of the agency um but you know i was there danny taylor was there mark ogden was there um we we were um we were um under ian whittle who was who was the northwest boss at the time and we we were we were all just um you know constantly trying to get stories that would get in the national papers and and we were you know we were often uh, you know because man united would be covered by all the national papers but they would generally neglect man city at the time which is not due to the fact you know due to any bias or dislike of man city it's just that man city weren't big news at the time so wardles you know the guy you know danny and oggy and i would go along to Man City on a you know, couple of times a week and, and, and speak to all the people there and we would provide the Man City coverage, the Bolton coverage, the Blackburn coverage. Um, 
Burnley coverage, and it was it was great. But then I, Danny left to the, go to the Guardian, as as I said, and just towards the end of that season, and I, and I was still you know very wet behind the ears and learning from my own mistakes constantly. Um, towards the end of that 99-2000 season, the Times ended up with a sort of sudden staff issue where, where they needed to get a, um, a reporter on the ground in the Northwest. And, and um, so I, I basically was sort of drafted in to become, you know, at the age of 25 to be their Northwest reporter. So covering all of those clubs I've mentioned, plus the Merseyside clubs, um, while still working for Wardles. And that was a incredibly intense, um, exhausting, but enlightening period for me. Cause I, you know, I was, I sort of went in there with no contacts at Liverpool or Everton or Man United and, and was the Times' reporter. Um, for the on those clubs and others and it was really as i say it was really in at the deep end and i was you know constantly getting phone calls saying oh 10 30 at night saying matt lawton has done this story in the telegraph or neil custis has done this story in the sun or or you know i was constantly being exposed my my lack of um, <laughs> sharpness and it, 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 at the time and you know I, I, I should never have got that job at that time but I was the right right person in the right place at the right time and, and eventually managed to um, build up relationships with with people at those clubs and start to get the odd story of my own and and just but that, that first you know few years doing that job it was like a it was like a roller coaster in terms of the you know the reporting side of it but also the as you said the 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 good times covering all of those clubs. It felt like, I mean, look, Everton, there weren't good times there. They, they were going through a really you know, difficult time battling against relegation. And um, it felt like Everton was very gloomy at that time. But, you know, Liverpool were on the up under Gerard Houllier and won, the, you know, won the, that treble of League Cup, FA Cup, UEFA Cup at the end of that season. And that was just mad being in Dortmund for that UEFA Cup final, 5-4 um, against Alaves. Manchester United were just absolutely dominant. They won their third league title, that se third consecutive league title that, that season, and yet nobody was happy because they'd they'd um, they'd lost in the Champions League to to Bayern Munich, and Roy Keane was furious with his colleagues, and um, you know it, it was there was a totally different standard existed at Man United to anywhere else. But Man City got promotion. Uh, that first season, Bolton got promotion under Allardyce. The second season, Blackburn got promotion, and it was—it just felt like Burnley got promotion as well. It, it just felt like a really buoyant time to be reporting on the Northwest. That's good stuff. So, um, obviously, you mentioned uh, contacts there. I mean, for those that, that might not know, I and mean, obviously, um, you hear all the time on most Sky Sports news, Sky sources or you know, sources. I mean, I know the reason for that is because um, you know, you, obviously, you can't reveal. Your contact's name, or was that they won't give you any stories or anything like that? So, yeah. in terms of um, the roles at the club, I mean, do they vary from sort of border of the level all the way down to like maybe the the, the kit kit man? Is that, is that how it works? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it just varies from club to club, and I think I think it's changed a lot over the past two decades. I think you know, I think if I go back to when I started in 
um, in on times in 2000, you know, I think at that time you would have the phone numbers for the managers, you'd have the phone numbers for various players, and I'd say by that time you you would you would use them sparingly. You wouldn't you wouldn't you know you wouldn't ring up a manager. Look, I I never ever ever rang up Alex Ferguson. I I had a home number for him. I never ever used used it because he would. I never had a relationship with him where he would ever have picked, yeah, picked the phone up. You know, if I rang him at home on a Sunday night saying, oh, look, this story is in a Daily Telegraph about, yep, Stan going to Lazio. Is that, is that true? I think he would have, you know, I think I would probably have been banned or castrated or, or, or something like that. It would, it would be, um, um, you know, he, he's not somebody you could ring. Um, Gerard Houllier, I had a number for him. You could ring him in an emergency, I would say, um, if you were desperate, and then he would be he would be helpful. He was always very polite, but you wouldn't you wouldn't want to be ringing him all the time. He, he was, you know, he had a press officer, and, and um, the queries went through him basically, and he would put the queries to the manager. Um, but chief, chief executives at, at various clubs w would often pick the phone up and 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 tell you, you know, they. You could put questions to to them, and and, and they would say oh, you know, this, but please keep my name away from it. And, and you, I would often get stories that way by speaking to chief executives at various clubs or or managers at various clubs who would say, yeah, of course you, you know, this is true, or you know, yes, we are interested in this player, but but don't quote me on it, don't have my name near it. And that's that was generally how it worked in those days. And um, I would say more and more as time has gone on. In fact, you know, on, on, on that issue, you know, I remember there being an issue or there being issues at Man City where I had numbers for most of the players there as a result of going to the training ground a lot and, and doing interviews with them a lot over the phone. There were allegations about something at Man City at, at a particular time and I was able to ring around a load of those players and, and say, look, is, is this true? Is that true? And you would get a kind of gossipy version of you you get each people giving a different side of version of events and none of them wishing to be quoted because because they get in trouble but um but you'd you'd learn the truth that way and you'd be able to present the truth as dressing room sources but you couldn't name your sources no. and that really you know a lot of the case now i think much more so now even chief executives managers directors, players, players' agents. You know, there would often be a case 20 years ago where you'd ring up a player's agent and they would vent their fury at a particular club for a contract offer to their client and um, and that would be on the record. And these days, that kind of thing never happens on the record. Everybody's always, well, look, this is off the record. Well, this you can't quote me on this, but you, but please do print this. So they might say now, okay, look, the club has, off, has, has made this offer. It's insulting to the player. Um, they've got interest from, you know, such and such a club in Italy. And you're then trying to think, right, okay, well, this is all very well. You're saying so-and-so's got interest from Italy, um, but you're an unnamed source in the story. I have to try and find out whether that interest from Italy is genuine. So, you know, and then you, you're going around unnamed sources in Italy and trying to find a, the, the truth from there. So look, it's very, very rare. If I, if I get a 
story from a manager or a chief executive or a director or a player or a player's agent or whatever, you know, you, you have to try and double source it. And it's very, very often a story that nobody wishes to put their name to. So I've got, I mean, there, there are reporters whose, whose currency all the time is, is news report, is, is news stories. I'm in a privileged position, I guess, now where you know, I'm not reporting on an individual club. You, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a columnist, stroke feature writer, stroke interviewer, whatever. Um, so I'm not, I'm not constantly um, get, you know, pressurised to get news. Well, thanks so much. Yeah. So those those reporters who are, and then often telling people who stories that they don't, you know, somebody like David Ornstein or John Percy on the Telegraph or. Matt Hughes on the Mail or Matt Law on the Telegraph, you know, the, the, the journalists who are, who are always pulling, you know, really good transfer stories and Sammy Mockbell on, on the Mail. Um, these stories very rarely have an identified source in them. And so when people don't want to hear those stories, when people don't want to hear that a player at their club has put in a transfer request or he's agreed to move to another club or, or that they're, um, you know, a manager is thinking of resigning or a manager is going to be sacked. Those reporters, because people only, they only believe what they want to believe. Readers don't want to believe that something negative about their club is, is true. So they'll, they'll suddenly say, well, where's your source? Where's your source? And the sources, you know, the, the ones, the guys I mentioned and, and many, many others are so good at getting um, the stories from those clubs and it's always um, unnamed sources and people just have to learn to recognize that when a certain journalist says something it's not because they've got an agenda against your club it's not because they're making it making something up because they need clicks it's because it's true or because what they've been told is is true at that particular time it doesn't mean that Player X is going to join Club Y, but it means that the interest that they're reporting in, in, in a particular player is genuine. And I, I you know, I, I despair of um, there being outlets on the internet which will just regurgitate and publish any transfer that rumor that appears anywhere without ever bothering to check it out and, and and that includes outlets which have their own really really good reporters and they should just put their faith in their own really really good reporters rather than um just seeking to regurgitate any story that anybody else has run anywhere just for clicks that 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 is a pet hate of mine but it's also a pet hate of the reporters on on those particular outlets yeah, I can imagine. Um, so in, the, in 2009, he became the uh, chief football correspondent for the Times. Um, you, you didn't feel you were, you were quite ready um, when you were the Northern football correspondent, but did you feel, um, after many years covering the, those clubs you mentioned earlier, did you feel ready to take up um, a, a really sort of high-profile position? Um, it felt quite daunting because I was... 33 and and you know I was following in the footsteps of Martin Samuel who uh, you know we talked about earlier and 
apart from being on social media, I can't think of any advantage I had over Martha Samuel. Um, but it's, yeah, I mean, I, I can't say I didn't feel ready because I, you know, I made my interest known when that, when Martin was leaving the mail, I said, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to get the chance to do that. And, and um, I'd love to feel that, I'd love you to feel that you don't need to go externally to, to get a replacement. And a lot of people at the time supported me and a lot of people were a bit like, oh, is he a bit, is he a bit young? But um, yeah, it was, I mean, again, when I, when I spoke earlier about a load of us getting, um, jobs at one time in Manchester um it was the same with um with sort of chief football writer's job people moved on and um so Danny Taylor became the Guardian's chief football writer um Sam Wallace was the independence and then became the telegraphs Mark Ogden became the independence and it, it was um it was yeah again a, a kind of I'm not I'm, I'm really not going to disguise it it was really being in the right place at the right time. And, and um, I, I thought and still feel um, that George Culkin, who was on the times with me, is a vastly better football writer than, you know, I think he's just brilliant, George. Um, hope he doesn't hear this. But he didn't have any interest really in being the chief football writer. Whereas I suddenly thought, well, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to be doing that. I'd love to, you know, I, I love covering that Northwest patch and doing Liverpool and Man United in the Champions League. And, but I, you know, I, I would love the chance to be doing, you know, England and doing world cups and, and do the London teams and, and being all over and, and doing that roving role where you have to be sort of jack, all, jack of all trades and master of none. And um, that was, yeah, I, I was quite um, inexperienced in that. I didn't, I didn't have, um, yeah, I didn't have relationships with people at the FA at that time. I didn't have, um, you know, re relationship with um, Fabio Capello, who would just take over as England manager. You know, I, I had to work on all of those things and and work on trying to get you know, some some degree of um, of inside knowledge at Arsenal, and Chelsea, and you know, knowing that there were other people that had a massive massive head start on me at those clubs so that was um yeah i, I think i've i think it, any job i've always done i felt like i've been very lucky to get it and very um uh, much as though I, I need to you know probably um probably sort of learn on the job because i think you i do think you're constantly learning on the on the job and in this in this role because People, you know, staff, there's a staff turnover constantly at, at football clubs. You know, manage, you might have a really good relationship with a manager or assistant manager or chief scout at one club. And you might think for, for a short space of time. I, I had a space, a time at Manchester United where I was thinking, um, God, I, I'm, I'm the guy who's, uh, I, I'm getting loads of stories here. I'm, 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 I feel like I'm on top of this. And then, um, you know, it was a really brief period, and then and then that person, one of those people, moved on, and one and then another person kind of got um, their wings clipped for briefing a bit too much information, and I, and I felt like I was back to square one. That happens all the time with 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 journalists with contacts. Ownership changes at clubs, managerial changes at, at clubs, and 
reshuffles behind the scenes, behind the scenes, they they impact massively on journalists' network networks of contacts. So you just have to be um, you have to adjust constantly. And I'm not saying spare a thought for the journalists, but sometimes sometimes um, you know a, a managerial change will be really bad news for a particular journalist covering a particular subject. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, obviously being the chief football correspondent, you would have um, you know, gone to many of the uh, total deciders or total clashes, top six games. I mean, um, did you, um, was that something you enjoyed? Did you enjoy covering uh, like the big matches? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there was, you know, I, was, I was often at big matches before and doing you know, Liverpool and Manchester United in the Champions League in and Champions League finals and stuff like that and, and you know huge games but you know there would also be big games before that that I would miss out on and, and big games in London big you know big international games etc big Champions League games and um, I think over yeah I, I think as what one change when I, when I became chief football correspondent was that I suddenly had my pick of the games and I was at I was always where I wanted to be, and that was, you know, being at World Cup final. That, you know, that, that's. I mean, the 2010 World Cup final was terrible. You know, one of the, one of the worst games I've ever been at. And um, but what an incredible buzz and privilege to be there. And and, and you know, the same in 2014, 2018, European Championship finals, Champions League finals, title deciders. Um, but you also, you know, go to big, big, you know, FA Cup third round games and go to AFC Wimbledon against Liverpool and that kind of thing, where you've got that, you know, crackle of atmosphere where it's, it's, you know, everyone's hoping is an upset. Notts County against Man City. You know, I love, I love Blythe Spartans. Blythe Spartans against Blackburn was one of the first um, games that I covered in that role at the times, and it just, you know, I, I love, I love feeling feeling like I'm at you know those, those those big games and and um, you know doing those match reports that people are reading the next day and you know I, I remember doing a was it, was it was the FA Cup semi final when Stoke played Bolton Stoke thrashed Bolton five 0 it was an incredible um, game and probably you know I think most Stoke fans would say that was the you know their their highlight of the past you know. Well, probably the best game of their lifetime in, in many ways. And somebody uh, once emailed me and said, um, I've got your match report of that game on, you know, framed in my toilet. And I thought, God, that's, that's one of the nicest things anybody's ever said to me. You know, it's, it's not the, um, it's not the, um, you know, if you're getting correspondence, correspondence from a fan, which involves your newspaper clipping being in their toilet that's that's not quite the um um that's not quite what you're expecting you you almost you're always expecting they say the, the opposite but um it's uh yeah so so that that you're know, doing those big matches and big match reports is, is was great and and um just something i i always love being in the you know being at those at those big matches none better than man city three qpr two in 2012, which is, um, I'd say, it's still the most amazing thing I've witnessed in a, in a football world. 
no, definitely he was watching it was um, something else. Um, so like um, not many of your uh, your peers, um, you joined the uh, Athletic uh, last year, along with uh, Danny Taylor, as you mentioned, Don Piper, who's been on this channel, um, David Ornstein, amongst others. Um, so why um, why did you uh, why did you join the Athletic? Um, well, I was happy at the times. So I I I I was. Not looking to not looking to get away and not not you know I was I adjusted to a slightly new role there and I I was enjoying that and and enjoying the challenge there enjoying the people I was working under we'd had a new sports editor Alex Kajelski I was you know loved working for him and and um, and this thing came up and it was it was Ed Malian who had been sports editor at the independent he said look there's something i want to talk to you about you know would you be would you be interested in coming in having a chat with these people um have you heard of the athletic and i thought well, yeah i've heard of it um i don't really know much about it you know it's it's an american website i, I, I heard that it was making a big impact there in america but i didn't really know anything about it so he said you know the people from um the people from the Athletic are, are over in London in, in a couple of weeks. Do you want to have a chat with them? So I, I thought, well, yeah, of course. You know, they might they might they might be saying, you know, do you want? To, would you be able to do a column for us or something like that? And and I was thinking, well, yeah, that, that might be something I could potentially do if I could find time in the week to do a you know a weekly column for them or something like that or, a, or an occasional piece. Who knows? So I went to that quite open-minded, and I went into this um, meeting in a in a hotel in London. I just interviewed Hugo Lloris that afternoon um, before the Champions League final, and sat down with um, Alex Mather and Adam Hansman from the Athletic, and they made it clear that you know they they wanted. They were going to launch in the UK. They they had massive plans. They wanted to get, you know, a whole load of journalists, um, a specialist on each club, the best specialist that they could get on each club, um, a load of general writers such as myself and and um, George Corkin and others. Well, I didn't name names at that time, um, but um, yeah, it was the vision that they laid out as to how this was going to work. What the role would be, what the model would be, how um, they were going to try to attract subscribers and, and grow as a as a company and become the place for football coverage in the UK. Um, I just thought it sounded absolutely amazing, and I kept saying, "Look, you know, who who are you? Who, who are you interested in? You know, have, have you thought of speaking to?" This person, that person, you know, if, if we're really going to make this successful, um, they would never commit to names. But they said, "Look, any name you think of that you that we, th you know, that, that that you think should be um, part of this, the chances are we're speaking to them because we we know the kind of people we want, you know, on the on the desk side, on the writer side, on the reporter side." Um, and I just thought, God, this sounds really, really incredibly good it sounds like something that i would want to be a part of i wouldn't want to kind of miss the boat on that and it'd be something that 
I was on the outside looking in. Um, so I know a lot of people have talked about, um, oh, you know, they, they, they must have been offered loads of money and stuff to go there. And they must, you know, money was never discussed on that, on that first um, meeting. But I came out of that with my head spinning, thinking, when I called my wife, I, I said, I said, you know what, I, I think, you know, not only do I think I might be interested in doing some work for them, I, I think, I think I want to work for them. I think this is what I want to do. I think this is, the, the, the project is so good, I want to be a part of it, if, you know, if, if things add up. So I think for about the next two weeks, I kind of was talking to them on, on and off and, and got to the point where, you know, I went to the Europa League final um, in Baku and the, the Champions League final in Madrid and my head was just spinning thinking, you know, this, these might be the last matches I ever cover for the times, you know, if, 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 if this is as it seems, you know, I, I just was so into what I'd heard from the Athletic and, and the way they were going to map things out in terms of giving you total freedom to write about anything and as much time and as much space as you wanted to write about anything. So at the Europa League final, um, Amy Lawrence, who was there for the Guardian, came up to me and she was like, so? And, and just sort of, yeah, any, any news? And I was like, oh, um, right. Are you, are you thinking about, are you referring to what I think you're referring to? And so, Eventually, over the course of those weeks, um, a couple of, a few of us managed to work out, piece together who was, who was, who had been approached and who was considering offers and who um, was tempted. And I think we were all, you know, I think even some who ended up um, erring on the side of caution and uh, and staying put or, or whatever. I, th I think a lot of people were very tempted by what they'd heard and I, I decided I told the Times like a couple of days after the Champions League final that, that um, yeah I was uh, I'd got this offer and uh, I was um, I was minded to go and around the same time I heard that George Culkin who I've referred to Alex Kajelski who I've referred to they were they'd also been lined up and I think that you know pushed me from 95% keen to 100% you know, keen because I knew once I knew that they were going to be involved that it was going to be a really really good um, project it was going to be um, it was going to be something I you know as I said I really really wanted to be part of and I would hate to have hated to have been on the outside looking in as that as they um as they launched it and and feeling you know god i wish i i was a part of that because i think i think you know, although uh, i mean I, I i was on the outside looking in um when it launched in august because i i wasn't i didn't leave the time still september till i'd um started uh, until I finished my notice period, but you know, so I, I was envious then. I, I just wanted to be part of it then, when it launched. Um, but I, I knew that I was going to be. I was knew that I was going to be there within weeks, and 
although you know, the Times, my, you know, being at the Times for 19 years was amazing. I was I was there for, from the age of 25 to uh, 40, 44, uh, which sounds like one of those, you know, when you're filling in your ages on one of those questionnaires, 25 to 44. So <laughs> it, 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 it felt like there was a, you know, a period of my life, whole period of my life was was spent working at the times and and it felt it just felt like the right thing at the right time and and um you know did i want to spend the next 20 25 years uh working for the times and doing the same job for the same people in in a you know knowing the um challenges that the newspaper industry was facing and i i ended up thinking well no as much as i've i've loved working for times i think i want to try something different i think this feels like the one time where you know the one thing at the one right time to um to take a jump and i'm, I'm a normally a very hesitant indecisive person but i just i just felt with with the athletic it just totally felt like the right thing at the right time good for you um now you mentioned earlier about um, you know you doing more um, sort of features and focusing more on interviews and that kind of thing. And did um, did that obviously appeal to you? And the fact that you know word count's not really a problem anymore, and obviously there's still deadlines, but not not strict as there would be you know, half ten deadlines um, for maybe match reports. Like you know, did that sort of play into you? You thinking as well? Yeah. I, I... I'm somebody who would always relish every extra minute that I could get writing an article. So if I, if I, you know, was when I was at the times and writing live match reports, um, you know, to a sort of deadline on the final whistle, I, would fi I, I found that really difficult. And um, it's, it, it's, you know, when you want to write something that people are going to want to read the next day, it's, I never felt satisfied just sort of doing doing an intro based on you know just if there was a last minute winner or whatever just just sort of panicking and write, writing oh blah, 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 so and so it's good last minute winner and, and and then the rest of it just be as it you know I, I always wanted to I don't know what the word is but you know refine it or improve it and I never felt happy when I when I had to press the button when they were screaming for the screaming down the phone line saying look we need it now we need to get off stone send it now and i would always you know the time we had to rewrite things afterwards i, I always wanted more time because i thought well you know this is this is mad we're you know we are we're writing match reports on the final whistle when you know we're, we're, we're um i haven't had time to even watch a replay of a certain incident i haven't had time to think what this means or 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 you know, or, or to put things in context, or at least to write a thousand words in context. I mean, you can certainly think what the result means, but it's hard to have a considered view. Or, or you would, on, on a Friday afternoon, you would interview, interview a footballer at the training ground and, and you'd um, end up with, say, 6,000 words of quotes where they've gone into their life, life story, they've said you know, something incredibly interesting, or they've, they've talked about this and that, and you go on to um, you know, you'd go onto the desk and you'd say, "What? Well, how much space have we got?" And they said, "Well, look, you know, you know what the Saturday paper's like. We've got, we've got 
you know, ads, we've got this to get in, we've got that to get in. Um, and the times are really good for this, but you know, a, a good run on an interview would be sort of 1500, 1800 words. And very often it would be less than that, or very often you'd start on that and then you'd be told, well, you know, there's an, an ad has come in, we've got, to, it's got to be squeezed. And, um, you know, I, I was one who was, who would generally get a good show uh, I wouldn't sort of suffer too much from word counts, but you know there there were sensible limits on on what you could get on a newspaper spread, and things always needed to be done within a certain time frame. Whereas if I'm um, and that, and that also made you you know although you'd go you try to get interviews and good interviews, you would sometimes shy away from proposing certain projects or certain feature ideas because you thought well that is just too deep for a newspaper article it's too broad for a newspaper article um and the athletic was offering something where you could do those big deep projects and you could you know if you if you're doing something in depth it wouldn't be you wouldn't be told well okay this is a thousand words you'd be told look just tell us what you think it's worth you know take take as long as you as you need to write it so for example one thing that when i went there alex um one of the first things he said when i went there in the september is you know when man liverpool play man city in um november i don't want you to go i don't want you to do that match i said all right okay well I I'd like to do that match. It's good, you know. It's going to be a big, a big match. He said, "I want you to go to Senegal and um, go to Sadio Mane's village and write and watch the piece, watch the watch the match from there, and, and tell the readers what that's like." And I thought, God, that sounds, that sounds mad. And that, and he said, "I'd have loved to have done that at the times, but you know, the budget would have been difficult. But also, it would have been difficult to." justify sending somebody there to do a piece that would realistically have been probably at an absolute stretch 16 17 1800 words whereas what i want you to do is go and if possible try and meet his family tell his life story go and meet his friends you know um say what it's like say where it is and so i i went i went to um i flew to um i actually flew to guinea bissau and traveled over the border from there um had this most amazing few days really traveling around senegal and it's absolutely the back of beyond bambali this small village you know there, there are images really of, of where footballers in africa in africa grow up and they're often in these very densely populated um areas like, like i saw in bissau and like um like you'd see in dakar or, or nairobi or places like that but this was this was a village with no you know no real football pitch it was you know children playing around the well you know mud huts chasing chickens around and it was the most eye-opening thing for me not you know as a football writer but also as a person who'd never been seen that sort of remote part of rural africa and i knocked on knocked on his uh the door of his um of his family's house well i, I drew up drew up in bambali and, and said look which one's sadio mani's house and some kids directed me to it and you know 
it was just um it, it was just it was just lovely um went in and just spoke to his family in my sort of um quite lapsed french um and they gave me his life story and they and and showed me the hospital that he'd he had sort of had built for the village and the school that he'd he had built for the cover for the village and talked about everything that he'd done for the family and done for the people of the village and the region and they and i said look can i come back tomorrow and watch the game with you and they said yeah, yeah yeah of course and so i then watched the match with them and that was just just a brilliant you know if, if i think about how much i'm missing football right now and i miss the atmosphere in stadiums massively but i also miss seeing what it meant to those people you know if you think how proud you know Spurs fans singing you know, Harry Kane is one of our own or you know Man United fans of Marcus Rashford or Villa fans of Jack Grealish or whatever Liverpool with Trent Alexander-Arnold or Chelsea with their new wave of players and you think what it means to see a local boy in that team but you when you see what it mean, means to the people of Bambali and Sadio Mane's family to see their you know, to see their Sadio playing in, in that, you know, the biggest match on earth that day and scoring a winning goal. That was just absolutely amazing. I, I loved that. Of all the things I've done for the Athletic, I think that's my, my favourite. But the point I'm getting back to really is, is that if I'd done that for the Times, it would have been, you know, as I say, it would have been probably a third of the size of the piece and I would have been able to do a, a decent piece but I was able to go into it in so much more depth and that's you know I've had interviews like that I did what the first piece I did the athletic was with Matt Janssen who you know people might remember from Crystal Palace and, and, and Blackburn and he had a you know meteoric rise when he was a young player but then he'd he'd um, had a motorbike accident when he was on holiday and he'd suffered brain damage and and um, never been able to got get his career back on track after that and he'd you know ended up having a sort of love-hate relationship with football and um I interviewed him but I, I took him back to Rome where he'd where the incident had took taken place and we did an interview which was again probably three times longer than anything I would have been able to do in the times or and it it was just amazing you know that that was a real I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not saying it's an amazing piece of journalism, but it's an amazing thing to be able to do and to tell that story in great depth, um, a depth that I wouldn't have been able to do. And that's, that's what I love most about journalism. It's telling those stories and, I, and ideally being able to tell them in great depth. And, um, and I think also for people who are covering clubs, I think a lot of people, you know, if you look at, James Pierce, who came from the Liverpool Echo, Paul Taylor from the Nottingham Post, Phil Hay from the Yorkshire Post, etc. They had been used to a model of reporting on their team where it was about often writing four or five stories a day because that's what the the uh, online model at those particular papers was. It was about sort of generating as much content as possible, and now they're you know reporting on those clubs in a totally different way where they're able to just spend all their time either getting the best news stories they've got with the extra time they've got or 
going into a depth that they would never have been able to do at their previous papers. So yeah, I think that's the, I know I've been going off ranges, but it's that thing of being able to tell the stories in, in depth rather than just sort of scratching the surface of, um, of the story. Man, that's great. Huh? Thank, thanks for sharing that. Um, so obviously they had athletics behind the paywall and there's other, you know, media companies and the Times who used to work for, for example, that worked behind the paywall. Um, but in terms of that model and even just how articles look on, on the internet, um, on their website, apps, etc., do you feel that media companies have made the most of what the internet can offer? What you mean, the way the athletic do it? In terms of um, in terms of like all, all sort of media media companies, like in terms of like pay, will payrolls help? I mean, and in, in terms of styles of what it yeah, looks yeah. like on websites and apps and stuff, do you feel like there's more scope for improvement in for different media firms? Well, I've got to say, when I uh, was going to go and see the Athletic uh, about. Whatever conversation they wanted to have with me, and I downloaded the app and gave it a, a free trial. And the app itself, you know, the, the app itself is just so much slicker and cleaner, I think, than um, I think the news. You know, without wishing to be unfair, than the, the newspaper apps are. Um, I think they put. An awful lot of money into making sure it's the best sort of cleanest most visually um, appealing reader experience they could and if i go onto the app store and see which apps need updating the athletic is just constantly updating you know bug fixes etc where to be honest I, i've never even seen a bug on the athletic, <laughs> on the athletic um, app you know there's they are constantly, constantly, constantly improving it and improving the visibility, improving everything. And, and um, I think with newspapers, even those who are, you know, the BBC, I'm not going to make it about newspapers, the BBC, their app is, is good. BBC Sport app is, is good, it, but it's, it looks very much as it did five, six years ago. It's not, it's not. It's not something that seems modern or or particularly slick. It's just it's it, it just you know serves a purpose really, and and you can tell it's not something that the BBC or that any paper is making their absolute priority. Because if you go into a newspaper office, even now, and even probably at the Guardian, which has got a very digital first um, approach, so much of the attention is on getting things that fit the the layout of a newspaper because they don't want to have to sub-edit everything twice they want to they want to um present the stories online in a way that reflects the way they present them in in the newspaper which is so, so you've got the whole the whole editorial model is based on the paper which is this thing which i love i still love newspapers but but they have a declining readership. A lot of it, a lot of the readership now is online. And so, and yet the, the 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 newspaper format I think still dictates the way that a lot of the papers think and do things. Whereas at the Athletic, it's 
it's all about the app and and that allows us to do you know we don't have to think about if we get a news story we don't have to think about it fitting in 300 words on a back page and then telling it in another 600 words inside and you know with maybe a small comment off it we, we tell a story we don't need to sensationalize a story so that it's strong enough to be on a back page we can we can tell a story with with nuance that says that a story is you know a, play, a club might be interested in a particular player but we're not we're not you know having to put a big you know we're not having to tie our colors to the mast of you know Raheem Sterling is joining Real Madrid or Sadio Mane is joining Barcelona whatever it's a different thing where you you're able to just approach stories in a different way and just reflect a you know a possibility in the transfer market or you're able to reflect um an incremental movement in a particular story or you're able to reflect a story which you don't particularly feel needs to be given the hard news treatment but maybe is better treated as a comment and i think that that is these are all advantages i think and whereas in that you know that newspaper format you know you do have to sometimes make a story a bit harder than you'd like to in order for it to justify being on the back page and that's that's you know we've all been in, on that in that situation in as newspaper reporters where you think god oh, this this story i don't really want it to be flammed up as big exclusive on the back page or i don't want it to be uh, you know I, I feel like it's a bit more uncertain than that but it, it's going to have to get, it's going to have to be the back page lead because you know because it, it's a certain it's a quiet day and, and and that is that is something which um that is that is something where we're and we do have an advantage at the athletic because people can see that stories aren't having to be spun into something that they're not in order to merit a certain prominence you're on the app you see there's this news story but i don't think they're ever sensationalized i don't I think it's ever the, the, the reporter who wants to sensationalize this, the story and newspapers. I think just sometimes things have to be sensationalized to, to slightly in order to fit a back page model. And that's what we don't have to do. And I think that probably helps in terms of trust from readers. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Um, and we'll obviously we're just going to speak about the athletic and the rise of, you know, um, Websites and, and apps and so on, and then also uh, YouTube has uh, grown big in the last few years. And um, you know, pretty much every team has got their own uh, you know, fan TV channel now. They've got Arsenal's AFTV, Redmond TV, Liverpool, um, West Ham fan TV. So, what do you make of um, of these sort of fan TV channels? Um, I think it's. I mean, it's. It feels like the whole. Um, it feels like a lot of what people think of of those fan TV um, stations channels is um, perhaps based on what they think of the Arsenal um, one because that obviously is the I mean that that's been the most high profile one and and sort of most notorious in some ways but 
I can, you know, it was, it was interesting to me that there was like quite a backlash against that when, um, when things were you know, getting very tense under Wenger and then under Emery. And I, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really, it's an interesting model, definitely. I mean, it's, it, it, to me, it's an extension of the old fanzine culture of the 80s and 90s. I mean, it's... Um, and phone-ins uh, as well. And phone-ins and, and everything else. But it, the, the, the difference being that it's, you know, the, the, those, those fanzines were, were previously, um, you know, were previously, you, 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 you'd read them, but, but you would, but they wouldn't necessarily dominate the discourse because even if, even if they were very well read, they were just read by lots of people separately. Whereas now you have fan TV channels that a load of people are watching at any one time. And that does, you know, it does seem to sort of, um, you know, particularly if we use, if we use the Arsenal one as an example, um, that did seem to sort of shape the media and fan narrative around the club at that particular time. So that, it's, I mean, that in itself is an interesting phenomenon because, I mean, I'm not, I think, you know, I think there was a lot of backlash against some of the individuals involved and some, and, and against the entity of Arsenal Fan TV. Now, I know people have said, well, these are, these are just, you know, with some of the fan networks, etc., that they are, um, you know, they're, they're not sort of pure creations that you know that they've been created by media groups etc i've no idea what the truth is about that but to me it's they're, they're, they're worthwhile enterprises and if and if and if they attract extreme opinion then that i don't think that should be allowed to sort of dictate what everyone thinks that all an entire fan base thinks but and I, and I don't really like the idea of people just sort of acting up to a to a particular uh, image or, or or whatever. But I think the idea of you know fans with microphones outside stadiums and asking each other what they think and saying what they think, I, th I think that's entirely healthy. I think that's you know I think if you if you went outside any um, any stadium. On any given match day, in in the good old days when there were such things as match days and crowds, um, I think it, I think it's you know it's generally a, a good it would generally be a good sort of barometer of what the feeling is between amongst a fan base at any particular time. I think it's, it's what happened with the Arsenal ones is that it became um, it came at a very a time when tensions were running very very high and and if anything it became sort of self-perpetuating thing where um emotions ran higher but you know you see i see you know there are there are big fan groups that do the same with man united and liverpool and they they don't seem to have the same issue they seem to be a lot more moderate win lose or draw and i think maybe it reflected it did maybe it did reflect the kind of volatile atmosphere in, inside hybrid, hybrid Emirates at, at that particular time. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, um, so in, in 2016, um, you released your first book, um, Forever Young, and um, the story of Adrian Doherty and um, football's lost genius. And uh, he was a, 
a youngster at Man United, um, very highly rated um, by the people we spoke to, Ryan Giggs, for example, um, but ultimately didn't play a first team match for the club. Um, but before um, you got into it, um, when did you realise that this would be more than a newspaper feature? It was, well, it was in, in initially attended as a newspaper feature and um, I went over to um, to see Adrian's family in, in Straban in County Tyrone um, with the intention of doing a newspaper article and they said that, you know, to be honest, they, they, they didn't really feel comfortable with the idea of doing a newspaper article at that time and, and it was... Uh, that was a sort of ongoing conversation with them, but because I because I built up this interest in his story, um, and because it just it really intrigued me as a, as a story that you know of a footballer who um, who was of outstanding promise and was sort of enjoyed top billing with Ryan Giggs in that Manchester United youth team who then disappeared completely from the world of football within a very short space of time and then tragically died um, not long after that. I think it was just something that I immediately thought, you know, this is this is a story I, I really need to get my teeth into and um, try and work out you know, what went on and what happened and what, who, you know, what the real story was with this guy and the deeper I dug um, which I continued to do even even when his family was saying that they didn't really want to, to, to do an article but I, I, I kept digging because I think I thought well this just this just fascinates me and I hope that one at some point they will agree to do an article but as I just found out more and more and more about him it seemed to be one of those things that yeah you, you could do a newspaper article and I wouldn't have done it without their permission but if I'd done a newspaper article it would have just scratched the surface of his story and said the bare facts um whereas in fact you know there was so much more to his story it was this sort of bohemian figure with loved poetry and loved music and loved Bob Dylan and went busking on match days and and I just you know he then gone to, you know, he grew up in the Troubles in, in Ireland in the 70s and, and there were just so many strands to this story and disappearing into obscurity and working in a, in a, a chocolate factory in Preston and then, um, and then, um, you know, working as a, as a sort of, or existing as a sort of little known poet musician in Galway. Um, and then the mystery surrounding his death it just it just felt like it it felt like it was it felt like it was a book basically rather than a newspaper article and I, I talked earlier about the the constraints of a of a of a newspaper and you know if i if i think you know if i run that story in the times or in any other newspaper or, or even at the athletic you could not have told the story properly or or Properly at all because it, it merits it merits a, the depth that you know, particularly if you're telling that story for the first time it has to be done in depth as it happened they didn't want to do a his family didn't want to do a um a newspaper article anyway 
but over time they kind of warmed to the idea of doing a book so that's how it really became a book and then it was a case of me trying to persuade publishers that this footballer that they'd never heard of um merited a book but there was no doubt in my mind that with everything i knew about him that, that it did and so it was just a case of trying to find a publisher who shared that belief thankfully quirkus did absolutely i mean why do you think his um story wasn't really told before i mean only there yeah, seems to be um players that he played with and obviously sir Alex Ferguson and a few of the staff that actually sort of knew, knew of him it seems to have been sort of airbrushed in a way yeah. would that be fair um i think it was fair to some extent yeah um i think um i mean there's without wishing to go too much into too much detail he his his family basically uh or his father felt there were unanswered questions about his time at manchester united had he been looked after properly had his injury been looked after properly had he been given every chance mentally and physically to to recover from the injury um and so that had been a sort of long-running disagreement between the club and and um and and adrian's family and they ran a a very small article in in the club magazine in 2006 i think it was um about him which was on the on the family's um you know not instruction but but it was it was a sort of a move towards some kind of peace offering towards them towards Edwin's family. Um, the family felt that that article, although welcome, didn't really begin to address some of what they wanted it to. And, and I think the ill feeling lingered really. And, and as Jimmy, Adrian's father, did more and more digging about the injury and about the way Adrian had been looked after or, or not, both when he was there and afterwards. Um, so i i feel you know realistically i feel that had it not been for all of that manchester united would at the very very least have done um they would have done a documentary on mutv or something like that you know they, they've done some lovely documentaries on players who didn't quite make it and juliana Mairana and names like that from the same era ben thornley and to me, the fact that Adrian's name was just sort of left to go quiet did, did reflect a sort of um, sense of, um, how would I put it? I, I mean, airbrushing is, is a slightly different term because, I mean, realistically, he didn't play for Manchester United's first team because of the injury he had and the timing of it. So, really it was going to take for Manchester United to shine a torch on his name and his story and they didn't do that um, beyond that one uh, magazine article and they um, when I spoke to Ryan Giggs about Adrian and he absolutely raved about Adrian as as um, as Gary Neville did as Gary Pallister did, as, as all, all these players who played with him did, and Mark Bosnich, and so many, everyone just raved about his pure talent and just 
how good he was age 16, 17, how he was running rings around the first team, how he was up there with Giggs at, at that age. Um, and Giggs in particular said, well, I, I said, well, look, do you mind me asking, why have you never mentioned him before in any interview, in any of your books, why have you never, ever mentioned him? And he said, you know, maybe it was just a sort of slight sense of awkwardness because because um, he didn't know what had happened. And because I think one of the others said, well, it felt like because his name wasn't out there, if you did mention him and if you did said, yeah, did say, yeah, there was this amazing player who um, didn't make it, got injured, drifted out of football and he died. They felt that there would be, it was opening a can of worms uh, that they didn't have the it would raise questions that they would, didn't have the answers to. And I can understand that. I really can understand that from a, um, from a club point of view and from an individual player's point of view. Um, I felt when I set out on that process and I felt that there, were going to be, um, there was going to be a reluctance from certain players to contribute to the book. I wasn't convinced that Alex Ferguson would contribute um, to it but but they did and they absolutely raved about him and I think they were all on an individual level happy to um, you know, contribute to telling his story and as Alex Ferguson said I think it was something like the boy with the amazing the most amazing football skill who seemed happiest with his with his um, poems and his guitar which I think is a beautiful line and um, that 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 line is on is on the is on the back of the the hardback certainly, and but I don't think I don't think on you know, it's a corporate level I don't think there is the same willingness or eagerness from Manchester United to telling to contributing to telling his story. Thank you for that. Um, from from what Ryan Giggs and the other people we spoke to in the book, I mean, how good. Did they say um, Adrian could have been? I think uh, not not how good he could have been, but how good he was age 16, 17. I mean, Ryan Giggs and everybody else basically says that the two of them were neck and neck in that in that youth team. And what, where it gets slightly confused is that people think that that means the class of 92, the Beckham, Skulls, Giggs, Neville, etc. He wasn't in the class of 92. He was basically class of 90. 91. He was six months older than Giggs, who in turn was a year older than those others. So when I'm talking about Adrian, this is this is you know, but by the time you know by the time the class of ninety two came along, Adrian was basically finished as a footballer. You know, he he got injured in early nineteen ninety one um and never really um never really got any kind of career again after that. Um, but he, um, but in terms of 89, 90, 91, when he was an apprentice and then a first year pro, everybody says he was as good as Giggs. Well, not, no, no, not, not everybody. Some say Giggs was better. Some say he was better. Most of them say he was, the two of them were neck and neck. And Giggs says that, you know, there were times when, um, when he was, much, you know, when, when Adrian was much closer to the first team than, than Giggs was and then there were, you know it sort of as as the two of them were, had went through peaks and troughs in terms of the development in those periods um 
one was closer and then the other was closer. But at the time that Giggs got into the first team in February 91, for the first time, Adrian had been travelled with the first team squad as a 14th man for a game at QPR a few weeks before that. He had also, I mean, he was he was basically next in line, ahead of Giggs. And then he got injured and there was this injury crisis and then Giggs got back in. It was it was perfect timing for Giggs, who, let's be honest, would, Giggs would absolutely have, have made it anyway. Giggs, Giggs, nothing would have, nothing apart from serious injury would have stopped Ryan Giggs getting into Manchester United and, and Manchester United's first team and having the career he had, which was an amazing career. Nothing would have stopped Adrian Dotti getting into Manchester United's first team other than the injury that he had at the time that he had it because he was that good. What would perhaps have stopped him having the career that Ryan Giggs had, and I don't think he would have had the career Ryan Giggs had, is not ability, it's personality. And um, at no point in the book do I suggest he would have had the, you know, the, what, what was it? 23 years in Manchester United's first team that Ryan Giggs had, which is just an unbelievable, exceptional career. Adrian was a completely different character, which to me made his story much more interesting than Ryan Giggs's anyway. I, I never, even when Ryan Giggs was probably seen as a bit more of a one-dimensional character, I never, I never thought Ryan Giggs would have made a, an interesting book. What makes Adrian Doherty a, a fascinating book is not just the fact that he was a um, an extreme talent or that he was one of these extreme talents who didn't make it. It's the fact that he was this extreme talent who had a completely different personality to 99% of footballers. And he was not just away writing poetry on um, on his afternoons off, but he was, he would, Give his complimentary tickets away and he would go busking in the in the city centre on a Saturday afternoon while his teammates were watching the first team and he was just a completely different personality he didn't have the same he was into philosophy he was into esoteric thought he was into um he was into anything anything and everything that theology transcendent trans, transcendental meditation he was just into everything he read about and it made him a fascinating footballer but I also feel it made him somebody that had he had the first team you know had he had that first team breakthrough as he would have done but for the injury I think he would have spent a relatively short time I think he would have made an amazing impact because of his ability and his courage and his fearlessness but whether that meant one game, five games, 10 games, 50 games, 100 games, I think he would have sooner or later just got bored of football, disillusioned with football and just thought, you know what, I just want to go and be able to sit in my, sit in my, sit in a bar with a guitar and with, you know, strumming away in peace. I don't want, I don't want to be, I don't want the hassles of being a footballer and the, the pressure of being a footballer and not being able to be myself. And again, this is what drew me to his character and drew me to his story. The fact that, or the feeling that not only was he denied the career that he would have had, but that I think his career would have been 
something that was unique in that he would have walked away from Manchester United even if he'd been a star in the first team within two, three, four years. So some people have said to me, well, if he'd made it, if he'd nailed down that place on Man United's right wing, we might never have heard of David Beckham. And I think, well, you know what? By, by 1995, when David Beckham broke into the first team, Adrian might have just tired of it anyway. He might just have you know, disappeared in a puff of smoke like George Best or like Eric Cantona. I think he had that kind of impulsiveness and individualistic streak that would have made sure that he didn't you know, have a career like Ryan Giggs. And that, that to me, makes him all the more fascinating. Man, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Um, now, Adrian, unfortunately, we talked about injury, he ruptured his cruciate um, ligament. Um, well, still a bad injury now, would probably be treated better nowadays rather than, rather than back then. And does it remind you a little bit of, um, of Paul Lake, uh, who was at Man City, yeah. again, very highly rated. He picked up injuries which would have been pretty easily treated now, but back then, you know, not... not not so well, and he seemed a bit phased out from, from Man City's history. Is there a bit of a similarity there? There is, yeah. I mean, Paul, I've, I've interviewed Paul Lake and I've met him a couple of times, and he, he actually came along to a, um, uh, an event at Waterstones in Manchester where we were talking about Manchester youth football in general, and he was publicising his book and I was publicising mine, and, and there are there are certain parallels. Yeah, definitely. I, th I think the, you know, the difference really is that Paul Lake had a had a he was having a brilliant career until until the injury. Um, and I remember Paul Lake when I was a kid. He, he was a, he was a brilliant footballer, and everyone was saying he was, you know, a future England international, future England captain. And he was he really wasn't far from doing that. I think he was on the long list of players for the 1990 World Cup squad. And so he had those sort of three four years of of really good football career, and for him. To have that, that taken away for him, from him and really to be replaced by four or five years of constant struggle to get back, that was heartbreaking for him. And, and you know, you, you sense that heartbreak reading his story. And, and I totally recommend that book to anybody who hasn't read it. Um, buy that book as, once they've bought mine. Um, <laughs> but... The, um, but um, so there are parallel, parallels, but the, you know the, the difference, I suppose, is that you know Adrian hadn't made the first team, and um, I think um, wasn't. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 Paul Lake was one of Manchester City's most prized players at, th at that time, and although he felt like he was treated like a second-class citizen after the injury, which I'm sure he was, um, I mean, Adrian was not so far on in his career, hadn't made the first team yet, and was down the list of priorities from the first team players. So as, as much for prior, you know, as much as he was a considered a brilliant young player, he was also one who was, you know, not the club's priority when they had Mark Hughes on the treatment table of Brian Robson on the treatment table ready to get ready for the the match that Saturday. And so he was um and there's also the fact that his cruciate, you know, his cruciate ligament injury was not diagnosed for eight, uh, six months. So, having seen all the doctor's notes from that period, he was, you know, he was just being 
he didn't have an, uh, a proper scan on his knee for, for, for six months. And it was only then at that point, once it wasn't getting better, that they thought, oh, right, well, it turns out there is a, there is a, um, an injury to the, um, a tear to the cruciate ligament. So yeah, definitely um, the injury was not treated as it would have been or would, would be in modern times and would even have been two, three, four years later. Um, I mean, Roy Keane did his cruciate knee ligament in 1997 and it was, I think it was probably a worse injury than Adrian's at the time, but he was, he was able to undergo an operation sort of almost straight away and, and be back on a pitch within a year or so and be get back to his brilliant best. And there are players who have got back from cruciate ligaments almost, you know, almost better than ever, or, or at least with no real, um, with no real lasting damage. I think Adrian, because he was a such a quick player, might have struggled anyway to get over that injury, even even if it was, um, even if it had been successfully operated on immediately. But yeah, it, it was certainly an era when it wasn't it wasn't the time to um, rupture your cruciate ligament. That's for sure. Definitely. Um, well, thanks for all those thoughts, Ollie. Um, if you want to buy um, Ollie's book, uh, links in the description below. Um, I highly, uh, mm -hmm. highly recommend it. One, um, go and read it. It's a good read. Um, okay, we're well, moving on now. So, um, over the years, you've been a, a regular on, on the Sunday Supplement on Sky Sports. Um, what's it like being on a, on a, a flagship show like that, and um, obviously talking football with uh, your fellow peers? Um, it's it's really enjoyable actually i mean i i i i wasn't i mean i wasn't really somebody who often watched it so i didn't really have um i mean just because i mean not not because i don't think it's good i think i think it's i think it's a very good program but um just sunday mornings i would either be working or i would be not working and not watching the tv you know i'd be doing something with my with with my wife and my children etc so it, Generally, I, for that reason, I I didn't really watch it, so I didn't. I, I'd never really thought of. Oh, I'd, I'd like to be on it. But whenever when I was asked, it felt like a um, it felt like you know, quite a big thing. But um, you know, people who you know, made someone say, oh, "Are you nervous on that?" And I said, "I said I'm not at all nervous on that because it just feels like just sitting around a table talking about football." I, 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 I don't really get nervous about that kind of thing at all. I probably that just makes me too comfortable and makes me mumble and just bang on incoherently like I am doing now. <laughs> Ramble um, rather than just give short, snappy, prepared answers like some are very good at. And, you know, some people are really, really good on TV, and I don't think I'm good on TV at all. But it's um, so it just seems to me to be something that. I would be quite happy to do rather than something I was desperate to do or that I would thought a great deal about. And it's it's nice to do it and it's um um good debate, I think. Um load of fans of different clubs are convinced convinced that the whole media is against them, the whole show's against them, and they tune in every week to tell you they hate the show. And uh yeah, I think well if people are tuning in every week to tell you that that um, terrible show again, lads. Um, 
<laughs> it probably tells you that, that, that they enjoy the show a bit more than they, they realise. Um, but I, no, I, I think it's a really good, brilliant show, and it's um, yeah, you, you get your you get your breakfast as well. Yes, those, those um, in answer to the questions, yes, the um, the food in the um, the middle is, is real, sometimes a bit stale, uh, and it does get eaten during the ad breaks. Well, we asked Don Fyfield about it, the other crossing through, and he said, "Yeah, and sometimes even if the guests don't um, don't eat them, the producers will um, will break them apart to make it to make it look like that you've actually been tucking in." Yeah, 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 yeah. We always have you always have to have something on your plate. This is a trade secret. We always have to have something on your plate just so that there's not a massive glare, reflective glare on the um, on, on oh. your forehead. Example. I think that's the reason why. Anyway, they're always keen for you to have something. On your plate, and um, I thought it was about colour or promotes promoting healthy living, but now they, they sometimes stick a, a croissant on your on, on your plate. Um, and I know pe people have definitely had a had a bite during the show. They have, um, but it wouldn't be for me because I I would save my food, so there'd, there'd always be the danger that um, I would still be um, <laughs> when the cameras went back on me. Yeah. Like Paul Merson on Soccer Saturday. Um, so, uh, um, obviously, you've um, you know you've achieved a lot in your in your career so far. Um, but what would you say is has been the, the highlight of your career? Highlight as an actual achievement or accomplishment? Um, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't really. Um, God. Um, or maybe maybe a, a, a memorable interview or. You know, particular matches. Well, that's been like the pinnacle for you. I, 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 um, two, two things that I think are important to say about this job is one that, um, one is that it's really enjoyable, and and I think everybody who does it appreciates that it's it beats proper work, and it's not, um, and it's not like the normal job that most people have but two it's really hard work, you know not hard work hard work like brain surgery or anything like that but it's intense work and it's and it's you know it's very demanding and you don't really uh not not demanding it's time consuming and it's um and it and it um it probably intrudes into your life you know your your life more than you know a great number of jobs and and you know you don't get much time off and um but i wouldn't swap that for the world so i i, I don't ever think of anything that i'm doing as a journalist as being achieving anything or or, or attaining anything or you know it's just it's a really enjoyable job but it, it is generally writing about football i think the the times when you are um when it can actually do something that's really useful is if I look at you know, some of the stories say Matt Lawton has done um, for the the Mail and now the Times about about you know doping and stuff like that you know that that, that corruption you know, that they are really significant stories the stories that Danny Taylor has done um, about the the sex abuse uh, uh, sexual abuse of children um, uh, historic sex abuse cases um, involving various clubs and various coaches etc that is something which if I was Danny I would be incredibly proud of that and I know he is you know uh, rightly so um, because that that 
you were telling people's uh, you know a story that absolutely needed 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 to be told and ended up with people you know spending the rest of their lives in 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 prison and i think that's that is journalism that, that's making a difference and you know in, in reality you know being realistic about it 99.9% of sports journalism isn't like that it's it's telling you know it's it's writing about football and that's that's what um that's what i wanted to get it into it for that's what i like doing most but i also love telling people's stories um on a human level and enabling people you know to tell stories that perhaps hadn't been told before and i think you know, I, I don't like achievements or anything like that but it, but i think the one thing i'm probably proudest of is is that is the book forever young which we which we um, talked about um, not only because it was sort of five years work on and off and it was an incredible amount of research and the writing was was challenging etc but it was telling a story which a family had sort of been desperate for the world to know but terrified of telling and to be able to tell that story and and just for them I think that felt that felt like you know it wasn't going to be something that brought the world to justice or or ended up with somebody um, being exposed for doping or abuse or anything like that and it wasn't going to it wasn't going to bring closure for that family but it was a really important um, step towards in some way healing the the wound that they they have and the upset that they have from Adrian's death and so yeah I think that is the thing that I'm proudest of I think everything else probably just feels like writing about football writing about you know this and that and it probably feels quite trivial by comparison but it's that telling it's telling people stories that I, I really enjoy no, no, that's awesome um so you've interviewed a, a number of um, you know, managers, players, ex-players over the years. But is there a, one uh, interview in particular that really sticks out in your mind in a, in a memorable sense? Um, it's a difficult one. I mean, there's, there's, so, there's so many. I mean, I, I love I, I love interviewing people, and, and the one thing I don't do is just think, oh, such and so, you know, so and so played so and so this weekend. And you know, West Brom are playing, you know, Leeds in a top of the table match. We need a West Brom interview. You know, I, I don't, I've never got into an interview thinking that. I've always gone thinking somebody has got an interesting story which I want to tell or I want to find out. I would like to do an, inter an interview with them. I think sometimes you see interviews in the papers and it's like, it just looks like kind of, looks like slightly half-hearted by the journalist in question by the player in question where there's not really an interesting story to tell where it's just a sort of token presence on on the pages so that they've got you know they've got uh, an element on a particular match on a particular day and I think well I would rather read something you know more interesting about that player than just a than or another player than just them 
sitting there in sweaty training gear thinking you know can, I, can we finish now um it, it's some some interviews you think you do and you think oh that's that was a waste of his time and mine and and i, I tend to avoid those interviews completely I, I like to do people who've got a story to tell and so um i mean i've hardly i, I haven't done that many interviews since i um started at the athletic but i think the ones the ones i have done have been where i've gone after people with a specific story and i mentioned the matt jansen one earlier and i think that would be the one taking him back to rome showing him you know getting him to show me around the streets of rome and trying to find out where he had this career changing life changing um accident uh, on a moped and he couldn't find it and so we ended up going back to the ended up saying well i don't know where that is but i know where the place where i got the moped from was so we went down this little street and he found it he said that there, there is there is and he went in and you could see him he's um almost kind of shivering and like oh my god oh god this is this is like this is eerie um i'm going back to this place where i where my life changed completely um was it 17 years earlier and he went in put his head around the door and said oh um do you speak english i'm i'm you know i'm, I'm just i borrowed a bike from here many years ago i'm just looking can i have a photo outside and then this guy comes came out you know guy in his 70s 80s came out from the back and he said yes yes i remember you footballer jansen um you both honda you know 500 whatever whatever it was and this guy not only remembered matt and remembered the incident and remembered everything but he then led us back to the the place where this accident happened and matt was just you know that was it was a really emotional thing for me well for matt first of all but for me and i think it, you know the comments on that piece told me that you know the the readers found it emotional too you know living through him going back to the scene of that incident and and um reliving it and talking about everything that happened next as he tried and failed really to put his career and his life back together and you know i think well that that could have been a an interview we did on the phone and it would have been good because we would have got you know you've gone through all the things that he talked about in his book but I think it was a you know i think it was a really good idea from uh alex who i keep um eulogizing um alex kajelski on our desk who said you know take him back to rome okay that, that's the way to do that interview and i think that was that was the one that that was a really enjoyable interview um and the other one that, that sticks in mind is one i did with joey barton when he just broke into man city's team i think um 2006 it was he was getting a bit of a name for himself and doing well and um wasn't too far off the england squad and he was um and he just didn't he didn't care joey and i, I still think he doesn't sort of he doesn't care about upsetting anybody if he, if he feels like he's telling the truth that is more important to him than treading around um people's feelings and people people's um you know sensibilities and he's not very diplomatic but that, that was a you know he 
criticised England players for the way they played in the World Cup and criticised them for bringing books out and said, you know, when I get into the England squad, I'm not going to be making the numbers up. I'm going to be breathing down Gerrards and Lampard's book. That's a completely different type of interview because it's it's knockabout stuff in, in you know, journalism. It's, it's stuff that might then get certain players answering back. But it, that, as an experience, was was enjoyable too because it's you know you don't get many players who talk in that really unguarded un, unafraid manner um so i'd say you know the, the people who are best to interview are those who are who really got a fascinating story to tell and those who um aren't afraid to say what they think and there aren't too many of either really but but yeah th th those interviews are really good very good. Um, you mentioned earlier about you know covering England at most tournaments um what what, what is that like i mean um, obviously you've got um you know many games in a short space of time and you it's always hot hot news when England are uh, still in the in the tournament so what's um what's that like when when you're covering up world cups and, and, and the euros I had, I mean, I've been to, let me think, um, I've reported on four World Cups um, from 2006 onwards. Um, and I would say that, yeah, well, the, the first one, I was a roving reporter. The middle two in 2010, 2014, I was reporting on England. The, four, the fourth one in Russia, I was a floating reporter. And I would say that, I definitely got those the wrong way around because um, <laughs> the England in 2010, it, I mean, look, there was a lot of it was dynamite in some ways because there was so many tensions behind the scenes. There were so many stories seeping out, but it was, it was really miserable. The whole, you know, going to the, the, the England camp in, in near Rustenburg every day was, was, you know, it was, it felt like everybody, players, you know, the FA Com staff, the reporters, everybody felt like they were, you know, it felt miserable from the start because they'd gone there under a bit of a cloud. There'd been one or two issues in the build-up, um, issues with Fabio Capello and Rio Ferdinand got injured on the first day. Um, there'd been a lot of expectation before that, but just nothing felt right. Um, and then they drew the first game against America that soured the mood further. Negative mood going into the second game against Algeria. That was just the worst. Oh, that was that horrific. Was yeah. Horrendous match. Horrendous. Mm. Um, although they won the third game against... Um, just. Just. Yeah, against uh, Slovenia. Slovenia was like Yeah. Um, God, absolute, absolute shame we have got a blank. Um, the... Um, they then got pasted by Germany in the, in the round of 16. And that was a strange experience. And I, I, I enjoyed it journalistically because there were a lot of stories coming out and, and Matt Dickinson and I were covering it for the times. We felt like we were, you know, on top of everything and we were kind of, uh, you know, we were coping well journalistically, but it was really, it was a really unhappy uh, camp. I would say, even the you know tensions between the journalists because 
there were stories coming out and there were you know tensions between the FA and the journalists and the players and the journalists. Pretty miserable. Um, I remember going, once England got knocked out, we were meant to um, stay with the camp until, you know, we weren't meant to break free until, I can't remember, it was a game in Cape Town. Yeah, I think Germany then went on to play Argentina in Cape Town. And I insisted on breaking out and going on, my, making my own way to Port Elizabeth, where I went to see Brazil play Holland. Um, so I kind of broke from the herd because I was just, you just go stir crazy in there with the same people, same restaurants, same tensions, the same journalists day after day. I, breaking free from that um, England, well, you know, from Sun City where we were staying to go to that Brazil uh, Holland game felt like, you know, felt like breaking out of prison or something like that. It was, it was all a bit prison like in, in South Africa. Then Brazil, um, it was different because we were in a city in, in, in the middle of Rio. That was that was great. But England were, I mean, the tournament started. England played, I think, on the third day of the tournament, on Saturday. Yeah, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Uh, third day. And they were, and then they lost, well, they lost to Italy, lost to Uruguay. And they were out, they were out by about the eighth day of the tournament. The joke was that, you know, England were, out before we'd all finished our malaria tablets, which was which was actually true. You know, we'd been to the Amazon to Manaus um, to um, for the, the opening game against Italy, where it was you know, sweltering hot and tropical conditions and all the you know mosquitoes and and um, and, and we had you know, malaria courses. And England were literally out before you know they were they were out before most teams had played the second game. That was just weird. It was just it was it was like England were were then were never there. I mean, England they went through the motions, played that third game against Costa Rica, but by the time England had got home, it was it was you know it was as if the tournament just started again. You know, we were it was like a completely different tournament, um, and it was really enjoyable being in Rio and everything that Rio was. It was just an amazing place, carnival. On, on the on the Copacabana sort of every night with all the Argentinian fans and the Chilean fans and the Mexican fans, etc. Um, really, really enjoyable. But um, yeah, it was once you got to the end, the end of the tournament, I I had to then write something sort of almost reflecting on England's tournament. And it just felt like so long ago that England had even been England were an absolute irrelevance in that tournament. Whereas two thousand six. I'd been not in, in England camp, but going to the matches. So I was there when they, you know, they beat um, Ecuador, and I was there when they um, lost against um, Portugal on penalties. That, you know, that, that that felt, you know, that was a, that felt like a big deal. But previously, those previous World Cups it never really felt like a big deal reporting on England, because it never even re reached the stage where. It felt like they were going to do something. It felt like they were just going through the motions until until they got knocked out. And that brings us to 2018, where I was um, traveling around the country doing doing other matches and loving that, loving being actually feeling like I was seeing the proper World Cup and seeing the proper Russia rather than being holed up in a 
training camp somewhere and being detached from everything and being in that England bubble. But in many ways, that was the World Cup where you would have liked to be in, in that bubble because the, the players and the, 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 the management and the, made this conscious decision, let's, let's actually engage with the, you know, with the journalists. Let's try and make, you know, not feel like they're the enemy. Let's, let's kind of take them on our journey rather than be dragged down their journey, if you know what I mean. Um, footage of journalists playing darts with, you know, Harry Maguire and Jamie Vardy and stuff like that. And it just looked, it looked so much more convivial and, and grown, grown up in some, well, childish in some cases, but grown up in others. Um, just more civilised. Um, but then I was still doing the England matches. So when it came to that um, game against Colombia, I was there for that. Brilliant. Um, brilliant experience. Um, I'm, not, I'm not somebody who would normally get massively pumped up by watching England. Um, I think I've always had a sl slightly healthy detachment from the kind of idea that England is the be all and en end all. I think um, some of the journalists are so pumped up around England, which makes me laugh when people say the media is anti England. I think some of them are almost too desperate for England to win. Um, but that, that 2018 World Cup, I found myself you know, being swept along by the feel-good factor that there really was and just thinking, yeah, God, this is great. An England team doing really well at the World Cup. And that um, game against Colombia was, was brilliant. I, you know, I felt a real thrill watching the, you know, the penalties and the quarterfinal against uh, Sweden in um, Samara a few days later, the going 1-0 up against um, Croatia in the semi-final and just thinking, you know what, this is actually going to happen and I'm actually going to be reporting on an England World Cup final uh, and that would just seem so big in, in my lifetime, never mind my journalism career, never mind you know my day. Um, so that all felt incredibly exciting and then it, you know, obviously it unraveled as the second half went on but um yeah it's so varying experiences really re reporting on England and I think the one thing you take from all of that is that the first game can really define the mood around an England camp because um once you get that first good result the momentum goes from there as it did in 2018 whereas once you, you know if you stumble in the you know if you draw your first game and, and, and you the overall impression is negative i think all the players just end up feeling like that negative negativity which is amplified by the media which is amplified by the public um just consumes them and it, it makes for a bad bad tournament i think uh, definitely um just finally um you know, obviously the golden generation gets talked about a lot by you know, the players at the time, journalists who are covering those tournaments. But from your point of view, um, why do you think, you know, the teams at 2002 World Cup, the 2004, 2006 World Cup, as you mentioned, is, is there one reason you think why they didn't get to a final or achieve what they probably should have done? No, I think, I th I think, there, are, I think there are loads of reasons. Um, I think there are sort of micro reasons like penalties, which probably ended up becoming a bigger reason. 
um, because it you know was self-perpetuating snowball in people's minds and you read of Stephen Gerrard trudging up to take that penalty in Gelsenkirchen against Portugal thinking you know just dreading the reaction if he missed and that's a footballer with the the mindset of Stephen Gerrard um, you've got so the penalties is is a big factor um, but I will I will also say that in a lot of those matches England didn't really you know I would I would I'd say of 2004 and 2006 against Portugal they kind of ran out of ideas in in those two games um, there was hardly any yeah. games where we actually played really well. Yeah, exactly. Maybe, maybe Denmark in 2002. Apart from that, we just sort of just struggled through and got nicked, nicked results, yeah. really. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, there's, 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 um, there have been some, that, well, look, there haven't been many really good tournament performances um, going back. I mean, it's, it's interesting now. Or over the past few weeks during lockdown, people, you know, all these games of from Euro '96 and the 1990 World Cup have been um, have been uh, sort of shown again, and people are kind of, do you know, what? I haven't watched any of, them. I haven't watched any of these sort of vintage matches replayed, um, and I'd I'd like to in some ways, but everybody's reaction to them on social media is exactly what I thought at the time, you know, against. You know, in, in, in Euro 96, we were terrible against Switzerland, terrible for the first half against Scotland, good once after scoring against in the second half against Scotland, excellent against Holland, hanging on for dear life against um, Spain, excellent against, West Germany, uh, against Germany, very similar in 1990, um, you know, which matches I remember growing up. I mean, and 86, there, there were. There have been an awful lot of terrible performances by England at, at, at World Cups. You know, terrible against Portugal and Morocco in in '86. Terrible against Ireland in '90. Outplayed by Belgium and Cameroon in in '90. Lucky really to win um, after extra time in both cases. Excellent against West Germany in that semi-final in '96. So it, it's um, so. It, those games, ninety and ninety six against um, Germany, they were they felt like kind of heroic defeat, if if that's not too um, galling a phrase. Um, whereas two thousand and four and two thousand six, it just felt like watching them in, from the from the press box, um, and certainly twenty twelve against Italy, um, they felt like games where England were kind of hanging on a bit. For grim life, um, to get to penalties while also dreading penalties. So that's, yeah. I mean, that's that's just me ranting about those particular performances. But in terms of those, that golden generation. And look, the phrase is used disparagingly and kind of mockingly now because you know they didn't, they didn't win anything. With England, they didn't get to final, didn't get to a semi-final. Um, collectively, as an England team, they they failed, and they they all absolutely freely admit that. They say that the margins were narrow in terms of penalties on occasions, but they admit that they failed collectively. But if you look at that generation of players and 
you know, let's take the, the Man United ones, Neville, Beckham, well, Ferdinand once he went there, but Skulls, Rooney, you look at um, Terry and, and Lampard and Joe Cole, Chelsea, and oh, yeah. um, uh, Liverpool players, Owen, Carragher, Gerrard, Heskey, even you know, when he was there. This Saul Campbell, Ashley Cole, you know, it was a brilliant, brilliant squad. And those players all won so much together in really, really good Premier League teams. Um, they excelled in the Champions League, all of them. You know, I mentioned someone there, Heskey. Heskey, you know, gets mocked. Heskey was a very good player for England, very good player in the Champions League for Liverpool. He was, you know, these players have had brilliant careers. And I think and as that generation kind of came to an end, I was sort of making the point, well, you know, we might disparage them as underachievers on the international stage. But, you know, that this was this was probably our, you know, we will do well to get another generation as good as that. And I do. I really do feel that. Yet somehow in 2018, despite having, I don't think anything like a stronger squad, they got to the semi-final. And that I think was down to two things. One is a really um, gentle route to the final. I think the, 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 the draw was favorable. Um, yeah, it was, you know, Colombia in the, in the second round was, was tough, but it was a fairly easy group. Sweden in the semi-final, uh, quarter-final, and then a, a Croatia in the semi-final, which was winnable. Um, so I, I do think that the, the route was um, perhaps a lot easier than the, 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 they'd had in, in previous tournaments. But also Gareth Southgate just managed the team in a completely different way. And it was as if he'd learned from every mistake that previous England managers had made. And he looked at it and thought, you know, we need... These players need to feel like they're not rivals coming from different clubs. Now, we've heard and read stuff in in recent years from players talking about um, cliques, you know, a Liverpool clique here, a Manchester United clique there, Chelsea clique, Arsenal clique. Um, I sensed that when I was reporting on England in 2010 in particular, that there were so many tensions between the different groups and you know, different players have admitted to that since. But... It's um, Southgate seemed to foster this unity and and just really kind of work on the friendships and the, and the the unity between all the players who were coming you know a lot of them were coming together not as you know proven winners from various clubs they're often kind of players who were you know, a big player at a at a club who hadn't won anything like Harry Kane at Spurs or they were kind of Harry Maguire at Leicester, who was on the way up, or, or Trippier, or Trent Alexander, or, or uh, Alexander Arnold, or, or you know, it was you know, Jordan Pickford at Everton. It was all these players who were kind of well, had something to prove, and the only way they were going to prove that was by being collective. And I think Southgate created a mood and a unity amongst them, which was totally different to what Capello and uh, Ericsson and Hodgson were able to um, create. And I think Hodgson, um, England in 2014 and 2016 
the performances were pretty disastrous. Um, the results were pretty disastrous, but I do feel like he did at least kind of iron out a few of those difficulties, a few of those tensions, got rid of, you know, started to bring through a new generation of players and helped them to start maybe thinking a bit differently about England and a bit, you know, regarding England as something to be looking forward to rather than something to dread. And I think frequently it became something to, to dread because of the results. But I think since Southgate came in, I think he's worked on that culture and, and brought through a lot of players who have worked together with him in the 21s and um, who get on well together regardless of which clubs they play for. Um, and so that is, that is a different, it does feel like there's a different culture around the world, uh, around the team now, whereas, you know, 2006, 2010, it, it just felt like a kind of squad full of superstars where there were ego, oh, ego I don't even really think it's fair to accuse the players of egos because Gerard and Lampard and John Terry and Ferdinand, etc., would not really would not have achieved what they did if they were like some impossible egos. But it just felt like the, the personalities of the players almost sort of weighed too heavily at times. Uh, and the managers didn't really know how to handle the different dynamics of different players. Uh, whereas, yeah, I, I feel like Southgate has probably got an England team which is. I'm not going to say more than some of its parts, but it, it probably does feel like some of its parts. And I think maybe the challenge for him will become if if players, you know, if come Euro 2021 or 2020 or whatever we're going to call it, um, Harry Kane will have a different aura reputation by then. Raheem Sterling will. Um, Jaden Sancho will be a you know probably be a big star on the international stage by then. And there will be, you know, I'd say it would probably feel more pressurized on, on all of those individuals than it did in 2018. Uh, I think 2018, they rode that wave really nicely. Whereas I think in uh, the previous tournaments, they just ended up being knocked over by the, the first real wave they, had, they hit. I totally agree. Um, well, thanks, Ollie. That, that was absolutely brilliant. Thanks so much for uh, sure, joining sweet. us today. Um, well, thanks, everyone, for, for watching this. Um, if you are new to our channel and you enjoy our content, uh, please subscribe to us and uh, hit that notification bell. Um, if you want to listen to this back in the audio version um, on iTunes, Spotify, etc., the link's in the description below. And that's where you also find our uh, Facebook and Twitter pages. Um, and if you Got any ideas of who you want us to interview next, whether it's a journalist, broadcaster, commentator, ex-manager, ex-player, um, just, just let us in the comments below or uh, or send us a message on, on social media. Uh, thanks again for Ollie for joining us today and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye for now.